Hi, everyone, and welcome to episode 348 of your Tick Bootcamp podcast. The title of today's interview is Reorigins of Neuroplasticity, an interview with Ben Ahrens. My name is Richard Johannesson. And I'm Matt Sabatello. Folks, we've become the dominant species on Earth as a result of our adaptive nature, meaning we have neuroplastic brains and we have epigenetics that allows us to be adaptive to our environment. Unfortunately, Lyme disease and ticks have used our neuroplasticity and our epigenetics against us. And this young man who suffered from Lyme disease for a long period of time has created a company that helps us to rewire our brains so that what Lyme disease has done to us is not causing us to suffer the long-term effects of a chronic illness. Rich, what I really enjoyed about this interview with Ben is how he talks about almost all chronic Lyme disease cases end up being self-perpetuating inflammatory conditions. And he goes on to say, and this is a little controversial, that it starts in our heads and it ends in our heads. And what he means by that is it's not psychological, it's neurological. And our brains are malleable and we can work with our brains to help our bodies overcome this chronic illness. And we shouldn't ever give up and we need to have hope that healing is possible. Healing is possible, Matt. And one of the pieces of the puzzle for many folks are going to be this neuroplasticity and the retraining of our brain. And we have someone who is going to give folks insight and clues on how to do that. So without further ado, I'm excited to introduce Ben Ahrens to the Tick Bootcamp community. Hey, Ben Ahrens, welcome to the Tick Bootcamp podcast. Thanks for having me. Glad to be here. We are really excited to have you. So Ben, first talk to us about Reorigin and the company that you are the co-founder of. Yeah, sure. So Reorigin is a neuroplasticity company. It was founded in uh, 2020, and it is really aimed 100% at helping people to reclaim their health by rewiring their brains. And so what I mean by that is that there is, as we all know, and as I'm sure we'll get into, there is a unfortunately growing number of people who are finding themselves afflicted by these um, what's known as self-perpetuating inflammatory types of conditions. Lyme disease falls into this category. So does long COVID. So do other forms of so-called post-infectious syndrome. But essentially, these are becoming more and more understood as full brain body, neurological and biological and physiological conditions uh, that require a very sort of holistic approach. And part of that approach uh, that seems to be beneficial for a lot of people is addressing the brain and the nervous system. And so Reorigin is really aimed at um, helping people learn how to retrain their own brain, applying science-backed techniques. Uh, the company was, um, and the program was designed by uh, neuroscience experts, PhD neuroscientists and clinical psychologists. Um, I helped put it together as someone who's actually experienced <laughs> one of these uh, conditions, long-term late stage Lyme disease, which we'll get into. Um, and everyone on the team, uh, including myself, other coaches, moderators, and my co-founders have all been through our own pretty radical healing journey uh, actually from chronic Lyme disease, uh, which led us to create Reorigin. All right. So Ben, we shared with you that the reason we invited you onto this podcast, and as you know, this is a podcast that profiles superheroes and superpowers, is because you have actually identified a superpower, maybe the superpower that every single human being has, right? That's neuroplasticity. So why don't we begin by defining neuroplasticity and how you discovered that superpower during the course of your healing journey from Lyme disease? Sure. So neuroplasticity is, at the most basic sense, your brain's natural ability to change its structure and function. And I fully agree. I think this is the most 
super superpower that every single person has, I actually became really fascinated with the concept of plasticity and malleability at a really young age. I was always into exercise science and exercise physiology. I got my you know, career uh, start out of college as a, a personal trainer. And I worked with a lot of people. I developed a specialty in corrective exercise and post-stroke rehabilitation. So I worked with a lot of people who had had uh, injuries and uh, neurological issues. And I was just fascinated that people through their own actions could change the way their body functions. And as I learned more about, you know, the body, how it's controlled by the brain, that what they're really doing is changing the way their brain uh, is, is structured and functions. Um, and so that seed was planted in my mind, you know, at a, at a relatively early age, then around my mid twenties, I got extremely sick and it was a <laughs> crazy experience because I went from being this sort of picture of health. I was a traveling surfer. I had a surf camp in Eastern Long Island in the summers. Um, during the winters, I would uh, be a personal trainer. I ended up training a lot of uh, athletes and celebrities and was just sort of, I wrote a fitness column for a local newspaper. And I just my, had my whole identity wrapped up in health and being this picture of good health. And around age 24, 25, I started to get these weird symptoms. And then it was like overnight after a uh, travel experience and a lot of fatigue and some stress and other things we can get into. It was pretty much night and day. I woke up uh, in bed one morning, just shivering, seeing spots. Uh, and <laughs> the rest is history. Uh, landed me in bed for, for three years. It sent me down this whole journey and ultimately, uh, you know, led me through, I would say just about every aspect of conventional and non-conventional medicine and ultimately back up the chain to the brain, which is where I found the most, uh, you know, possibility. Okay, so we're going to talk about the upstream and downstream tools that you use to heal. Uh, and because you are, you know, folks, uh, you know, who are only listening to this podcast, because it is an audio only podcast, cannot see you, but we can share with them, you are, you appear to be an uber fit young man now, and you worry uber fit young man before you went on your journey. So there was this gap between the uber fit athletic young man who was writing a column about fitness um, and and uh, and the guy who appeared before us today. But before we get to that part of your journey, I want to walk it back a little bit further, right? So are you a native Long Islander? Did you grow up here on Long Island? I did, yeah. I was actually, I grew up in, in Montauk and then went to school in Sag Harbor, then moved further, uh, you know, uh, west and went to middle school and high school in the city. Uh, but initially, Long Island, I definitely consider my home. All right. So, uh, of course, Long Island is the home to Lyme disease, although... Uh, the disease was not named um, here because of the cluster um, that was uh, that was identified by you know a very um, active pair of moms. Uh, uh, but uh, we have uh, had contact with Lyme disease during all of Long Island history. In fact, one of the earlier names of Lyme disease was the Montauk Knee. So you grew up in the heart of Lyme country, right? Your entire yep. life you you spent um, in Lyme country or in the Lyme Belt, as we call it. So talk to us about what you knew about ticks and tick diseases before uh, you got chronically ill. Yeah. So I knew about it from a really young age. Um, although I, I will say, you know, the the worst cases I knew were people that had gotten it 
uh, maybe gotten sick for three or six months uh, and then seemed to, to get better. It wasn't in the forefront of my mind, especially as a kid who just, you know, you got your life ahead of you. You're all healthy and running around. Uh, I'll say me and my sister definitely grew up picking ticks off each other. I remember my dad had this method of, you know, like burning them off our backs with a match head. So they'd back out and then he'd, you know, pull them out. Um and I did. Terrible. That's terrible. <laughs> Is it? Okay. So don't do that. Um, but I did actually have, you know, uh, a number of symptoms, even as a kid, I had, I had, um, my joints would get inflamed. I had, uh, neck pain, you know, popping that would always happen. Um, I even went to the doctors about, it and I got diagnosed at one point age 12, I think with juvenile rheumatoid arthritis. Um, but you know, as, as someone who's relatively young and healthy without a additional allostatic load, the body can actually handle a tremendous amount of stuff. And as I'm sure you know, there's there's actually many people who I'm sure have Borrelia or, or some other co-infections and would test positive for those, but don't necessarily exhibit all of the, the harsh symptoms of chronic Lyme disease. And so we can get well, into- kind of the... let, let, me, let, me, let me just stop you there for a second. We know that 15% of the world's population has has uh, has the antibodies for Lyme disease, right? So it's, it, mm. it, you know, and the number is growing, but literally 15% of the world's population has that now. Yep. And my, you know, my stepfather is a great example. He's one of these people that will constantly, whenever he uh, gets tested, he tests positive for Lyme, but has never had a symptom in his life. He's uh, 84 years old now. And um, I, after getting sick and going down this rabbit hole, just jumping around a little bit here, I went to a talk uh, by Dr. Thomas Rao at the Marion Institute in Massachusetts, biological medicine. And in that talk, he mentioned that uh, if you start pulling people off the streets in the Northeast where we live, he estimated roughly 40 or more percent of people would test positive for Lyme. But as he put it, less than 2% would actually have Lyme disease, which means the symptomatic expression of the condition. All right. So, and actually we'll, we'll, we'll one up you on that. When we interviewed Dr. Bill Rawls, uh, the author of Unlocking Lyme and uh, the Cellular Wellness Solution, he actually argued that on Long Island, if we tested everyone, more than 90% of the people in our uh, in our community would actually test positive for Lyme disease. Mm -hmm. So it is, it is a huge problem. And I think what's important that we, you know, we footnote for a moment with you is you're clearly a very smart young man. You are very articulate. You are, you know, you have a, uh, a, a family structure, you were getting bitten by ticks on a regular basis. So despite being smart, despite being aware, despite being uber fit, all of those pieces did not come together to keep, put you in a position where you could keep yourself healthy and safe from Lyme disease, right? Correct. Yeah. So we need more than we need need more than awareness, right? Because awareness is not going to keep you safe. You need more than being intelligent. You're a smart guy and you couldn't keep yourself uh you, you couldn't keep yourself healthy. And you need to be more than uber fit because you are not only uber fit generally uh and able to manage these microbes in your body for a long time, but uh, unfortunately uh and and as a fitness professional and as somebody who was who was working in this industry and writing in this industry, you still had a moment in time where you became immunocompromised and you ultimately lost the ability to keep yourself healthy from these microbes. Yeah. You know, in retrospect, one of the biggest things I learned, uh, and this is something I, I learned from doing some research into um, uh, well, a lot of biological medicine, uh, but yeah, mainly it's really this total load theory, you know, and I, I really came to understand that the the Lyme or the, the bacteria infection was sort of the straw that broke the camel's back, but the camel's back might not have broken if it wasn't carrying some other heavy load. 
that prompted the question, well, what constitutes that load? You know, as you said, I'm healthy, I'm young, I'm, I'm relatively fit. You're a professional athlete too, things. by the way, right? You were a professional athlete. You were a professional athlete at the time that you had gotten sick. Professional athlete, yeah, traveling surfer. And um, yeah, which by the way, just to put a footnote in that, uh, athletes are not necessarily the most healthy. Uh, you know, Thank fitness uh, does not always dovetail perfectly with uh, health, resilience, and longevity. I think there's actually <laughs> certainly can be a divergence when you're going for for high performance. Um, there's other ends of the spectrum that that take a hit. But generally, yeah, I mean, you know, very healthy, felt great, had tons of energy, was strong. Um, and then things sort of built up. I mentioned I was running this surf camp on Long Island. Uh, great fun, a lot of responsibility, a lot of stress. Um, there was also some, you know, uh, some childhood issues and, and sort of traumas and things under the surface, which sort of came out later that I realized I had to reprocess. And, you know, we know that I love this analogy in European biological medicine. They always put up this giant barrel and they say, okay, you know, your system is like this big barrel and we can handle as human beings an incredible amount of stress and pathogens and toxicity and negative thoughts and all of the rest. Like we, we are really, really resilient creatures, but we are also finite. We are human and there is a limit to how much our system can handle. And when our capacity to recover from a stressor um, is exceeded by the number of stressors in the barrel. And by stressors, I'm saying these can be all different things. They can be physical you know, toxigen, uh, toxins, they can be pathogens, they can be um, stressful events, childhood experiences, genetic uh, you know, uh, issues that have been handed down. All of these things can certainly reach a certain point where there's a sort of breaking of the dam. And it's at that point that we start to experience symptoms at first, then maybe getting run down. And then if, if things really persist as they did, you know, for me, or, or really overwhelms the system, what we find is this almost sort of short circuiting of the nervous system and the immune system. And now the body is kind of sent into this tailspin where um, it just can't really find uh, its footing and homeostasis on its own. So talk to us about your um, your pot boiling over and how bad did it get for you? So you 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 gave us this this description and the, and you created this image in our minds about you know this very athletic um, you know professional athlete and entrepreneur who is now suffering a great deal of stress. Now you also sort of gave us the you know the the preview of having bitten by ticks repeatedly during your life having a dad that was burning them off of you, which of course made it more likely that you were going to get Lyme disease. Um, and uh, and by the way, I, I can tell you that we, we during my childhood, we did not remove ticks properly either. So that's not, it's not uncommon for folks to use these, you know, use some native knowledge that isn't necessarily supporting us when we're dealing with that and parents using native knowledge. It's not, we, we, Fortunately, my mom wasn't burning them off us, but we were putting Vaseline on us, believing that the tick was going to back out before we pulled it out, which, of course, mm -hmm. you know, makes things worse as well. But P.S., we, we now have uh, we now have this, you know, this uber fit young man crashing. So talk to us about the crash and talk to us about how bad it was for you um, when you uh, when you went on that uh, leg of your journey. Yeah, so. Um stress building up <laughs> summer of, I think it was 2008 or 2009 running this surf camp, not getting a whole lot of sleep, uh, a lot of responsibility, 200 campers, professional camp staff, boats, power boats, jet skis, surfboards, windsurf rigs, all this kind of stuff, a lot to manage for a young, relatively young guy. And, um, yeah, so a lot of stress, not getting a lot of sleep. Um, 
still training people on the back end of that in the evenings um, and just slowly getting worn down. Then that fall, I took a trip to West Africa. I was actually competing in a surf contest there. Spoke about this in a TED talk that I gave. And in that contest, it was, I think, like an early morning uh, competition, the morning after a you know 36-hour flights and travel experience to get to Senegal. Um, I slipped off my board and I just, it was like my brain just said, no more cut power. <laughs> and my entire body just went limp. And it, I remember just floating there for, for minutes. And eventually I could get, you know, that little survival neuron kind of crept back in and allowed me to start to wiggle some, some limbs and get myself back to shore. And, um, I just remember going into bed and kind of sort of convulsing muscles, contracting, uh, you know, seeing spots, just feeling feeling incredibly ill, like, like a flu came on immediately. Um, so made my way back home, thought, okay, too much stress, too much travel, rest, chicken soup. That's the call. And, uh, that's what I did. And that exhaustion seemed to get worse. If that was even possible, it was like with every, um, amount of space I gave myself, that wave of exhaustion just got deeper and deeper. And probably the best way to describe it, and I've heard others describe it this way as well, it felt like I was under like 10x gravity, you know, laying in bed, just being crushed <laughs> into my into my pillow. Um, at the same time, there was all this other stuff going on. There was weird migrating pains as if I had done like a massive workout, but the soreness would migrate from my left quad to my right shoulder, you know, down my right arm to my fingertips, to my forehead. Um, all of these weird sort of sensations, uh, sleeping became almost impossible. Uh, sensitivities to light and sound. I had to put garbage bags over the windows, tape over, you know, the VCR. I know a lot of people have this experience as well. Um, a ringing phone sounded like a, a bomb going off. I was just like absolutely, um, you know, bombarded. And, and as I mentioned, blurred vision, thick brain fog. And another thing I mentioned in the TED talk, which is, was probably the most pivotal and disturbing moment for me was, uh, one morning shortly after I got home and all these symptoms were, were coming out when I, I, I tried to sit up in my bed and I was looking at these spots on the floor just like with some degree of familiarity, but at the same time, a total disconnect, not knowing what these blurry spots were. And I realized that they're my shoes. And even knowing that they were my shoes, I, I was like, what are they for? How do I, how do I use these things? I just, there was a total disconnect. And there were so many things like that, um, that felt like, and basically were signs of dementia. Uh, that it was really frightening and not at all where I ever thought I'd be at age 25. Well, and we're going to talk a little bit more about how that experience helped you to get to the place where you are now and the tools you're using to help other folks. But let's stay with this part of your journey. So you now become chronically ill, right? You're bed bound uh, and uh, your brain is shutting down, your body's shutting down. And, uh, and that goes on for how long a period of time? How long are you bed bound? And what medical treatment are you seeking to try to overcome the challenges that you now have uh, with even recognizing what shoes are? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So ultimately that period went on for three years. Um, the medical stuff started within the first, I'd say after three or four weeks when I, after all that rest and symptoms were persisting and worsening, I wasn't getting better. 
I was living in a basement apartment with mold in, in Eastern Long Island here. Uh, ended up moving back to my mom's uh, house and crashing on her couch. To this day, we joke that there is, she has the same couch. I don't know why, but there is this like permanent <laughs> dent in the couch where I planted myself for. Ben, it, it's time for you to buy your mom a new couch. That's the call. Yep. <laughs> I know I'll get her for her birthday now. Um, so anyway, moved back home and my, I mean, my mother was just outstanding. You know, she, uh, literally took me to these doctor's appointments and started off with the general practitioner, uh, who said, yeah, you've been traveling too much. You might, you know, um, uh, I think he, he found that I had, uh, picked up, a uh, some sort of stomach, you know, bug there, but anyway, he basically prescribed what I was doing, which was rest TLC and chicken soup. Um, so, okay, you know, do more of that went back to him after another three weeks. Okay. You know, this is you, you spend a lot of time on long Island. Let's test you for Lyme. So took the Lyme test that came back with mixed results. I think it was IgE, you know, positive indicative of old infection, but not active infection. So he was like, ah, we're not too concerned about that. We'll give you three weeks of doxy as a precaution, but that's probably not the issue. Um, you know, give that another six to eight weeks and, and wait and see. And, um, ultimately kind of found a new general practitioner who, um, did a lot of testing and the more you look for, the more you find. And of course, when we're dealing with this type of, uh, infectious syndrome and, and by syndrome, we mean really multi-systemic, you know, sim syndrome that affects all systems and cells and organs in the body, you find a lot of stuff. And so he sent me to the cardiologist who sent me home with a halter top monitor who said, called me in the next day and said, you're a very sick young man. Um, you know, my heart rate was all over the charts. I had extremely bad POTS or postural orthostasis tachycardia. You know, if I changed my body's orientation in my bed or sat up in the morning, it was like, <laughs> you know, just getting hit by a truck. Heart rate would go up to 150 or 180. Um, so, you know, out of that panic, he's like, all right, let's get you to the neurologist. Neurologist did spinal taps, uh, tested the spinal fluid for uh, uh, antibodies of Borrelia, found high titers in the spinal fluid, put me in, uh, you know, MRIs, found multiple brain lesions in the frontal cortex. All the while, you know, fear is going on. Like all, all this, this, this story is building that I'm just basically, I don't want to curse in this podcast, but you can, I'm screwed, you know? So uh, basically the condition is not, the, the prognosis does not look good. Um, this phase, you know, went on for years. Um, you know, that led me to, uh, antibiotics, cycling all different sorts of antibiotics, which led to killing off all of the bacteria in my gut, which led to horrible, you know, fungal infections, hence enter, you know, diflucan, nystatin, all the antifungals. And it's just this constant back and forth between, you know, antibiotics and then killing everything off and then trying to, trying to kind of repair the damage from those upgraded to, um, uh, intravenous rocephin for one or two six month periods with a catheter, you know, stitched into the upper art, uh, upper arm and inserted in the heart. Um, and there I was on the couch with an oxygen machine and, uh, you know, IV pole. And, uh, that's where I, I stayed. And, and that's, that was my life for, for years. Um, you know, all the while trying to figure stuff out and, uh, because of the brain fog and the neurological symptoms, I, I really couldn't do much reading, but fortunately uh, there was, um, podcasts were like just becoming a thing and UC Berkeley was putting some of their one and 200 level courses online. And so I was 
virtually attending courses in um, neurobiology. And um, yeah, we can get into that as well. But we are. So let, let me ask you to pause there for a second, Ben, because we, we are going to geek out with you on that. Uh, and you're doing a great job of outlining the story. But I, I do have I do have a, a piece that I think we have to discuss as fellow Long Islanders and 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 as uh, as people who who are passionate about Lyme disease. Uh, one of the things that's jumping out at me is uh, again you you grew up on the Lyme Belt. You're in you're 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 in Lyme Central. You're treating with doctors who are who are now diagnosing you with maybe acute Lyme disease and but they're really struggling with with trying to come up with a diagnosis and you're 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 spinning down the drain. I mean you're you're you went from being a professional athlete to being almost dead, laying on the couch. And creating a dent in your mother's couch, right? I mean, you're 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 being absorbed into this couch, and you're getting ready to move on to the other side. And I think, in part, that's because we didn't have a definition, or the doctors who were who were evaluating you didn't have a definition for Lyme disease. What I mean by that is, and you started to touch on that, is that Lyme disease is a disease without a definition. So we here at Take Boot Camp are now taking control of of that process, and we are now going to define Lyme disease for the world. It is not acute disease. It is a multi-systemic, I'm sorry, it is a polymicrobial, multi-systemic, chronic infectious disease. That's what Lyme disease is, and that's what you had, but nobody had a definition that you fell within, and as a result, they were just sort of bouncing around and coming up with a whole bunch of different, um, you know, diseases that you may have been suffering from because they were never tying it together because they didn't have a definition. Somebody tripped across Lyme. They were treating you for Lyme. They didn't think you had Lyme because they didn't have a proper definition for Lyme disease, right? And they came up with a number of other definitions. Again, as somebody who watched your TED Talk, I know they 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 diagnose you with multiple sclerosis, for example, which is one of the things that we see very often in this community. But they diagnosed you with a lot of other things because they didn't really have a bucket in which to drop your symptoms into. So talk to us about what other things they diagnose you with in addition to multiple sclerosis. Yeah, so MS was one of them based on their finding with the MRIs and brain lesions, uh, spinal taps as well. Um, I mentioned the juvenile rheumatoid arthritis came back on the table. True story, uh, one doctor <laughs> uh, legitimately recommended that my legs be broken in four places and realigned because my knees were off by four degrees. And he said, okay, this is putting all this pressure on the fragile uh, you know, connective tissue and you know, creating further erosion. I was like, ah, I don't know if that sounds like the best solution. <laughs> um, so yeah, the the juvenile rheumatoid arthritis, you know, POTS I mentioned, chronic fatigue syndrome was definitely thrown out. Um, the important thing to notice here and what really started to stick out with me is that these so-called diagnoses are really just descriptive terms. You know, chronic fatigue syndrome doesn't tell you anything about the cause. It literally means tired all the time. Right. Uh, you know, <laughs> so, um, all right. So we, we have a number of different disorders rather than diseases. Right. And, and, and that's going to sort of walk us into the next piece of this. So you, uh, you now, um, you now start to uh, come up with some solutions to your problem. Right. And you feel, you feel, you feel uh, called to start taking these courses um, that were being available to you, uh, despite your very fragile, physical, emotional, and spiritual condition. So talk about what 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 led you to believe that this was something that was going to be helpful to you and 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 talk about what you discovered when you started taking these online courses. Yeah, so I'll say, you know, very upfront, I did not necessarily fully believe that 
these things would be helpful. I just didn't have anything else <laughs> to do, or that was more important, you know, than, um, than, tr than kind of, it started really like grasping at straws, the things that I had initially grasped that. And I think everyone unfortunately goes through this experience where you really, really put your trust and faith into, uh, you know, the, the mainstream, the, the medical doctors, uh, as, as people that we, we look to as someone who knows more than we do. Um, and when that, fails to to yield an adequate result um it's sort of it's sort of devastating it's it's sort of like paradigm busting because we're like oh man like i i was relying on this um infrastructure on these people on this education this knowledge and and it's this is really coming up short so i i certainly went through all the emotional phases of like you know just feeling like i was had the the ground, like the rug pulled out from under my feet, you know, what, what can be done now? And um, so I started with kind of turning to the things that I, that I knew or, or that I had experienced before. And some of those things were like, um, you know, coming from an exercise and, and um, athletic background, or like, okay, uh, movement, nutrition, you know, these, these things. So um, I started getting into a little bit more like nutrition, learning about how different foods can uh, contribute to or potentially reduce inflammation. And so, of course, you know, I removed like a ton of things from my diet. And as I did this through trial and error, I found that I was very reactive and sensitive to a lot of things. I had developed a lot of uh, chemical sensitivities, food sensitivities, in addition to those light and sound sensitivities. So for the time being, it did seem to help with that reactivity to remove things like gluten and sugar and, um, you know, caffeine and nightshades. And there was a lot of, you know, specific things that seemed to be triggers for me. So I saw that as kind of low hanging fruit, like, okay, let's, let's get some of these things out of the way. And, you know, body started to become a little bit less reactive, didn't solve the problem, but it felt like a step in the right direction. Then, you know, I, kind of had that seed planted that I mentioned before from working with these, um, uh, you know, injured uh, patients who were coming back from, uh, from, from uh, neurological injuries and, um, you know, realized that, okay, there's this, there, there has to be this, this sort of other component. We, of course, we have to take care of the body, um, but there seems to be something else going on here. And one of the things that, um, Actually, I would love to to share this with your community if I can find it. I'm sure I can. I I remember I, I wrote this this journal entry where I really tried to describe what it felt like to to have these Lyme symptoms because it was so different from anything I had ever experienced before, and it was something that um, I've heard other other Lyme uh, you know uh, people and Lyme patients you know talk about. But it's basically there's this this weird layer of perception where you kind of realize that how you're feeling in some way, the symptoms or, or th things like pain or fibromyalgia um, have a perceptual component. Not to say they're not there. The experience is absolutely real. But I remember feeling, I described it like an avatar. I think I had just seen that movie and I described my, myself feeling like I'm not me. I am sort of like this puppet master behind my body. And the weird thing that I noticed was that even in the midst of all of this fatigue and under all these symptoms, um, in certain instances and in certain times, I could still manufacture the strength to say, get up and walk into the kitchen but maybe I'd have to recover for four days from that, you know? And so the, the perceptual thing that I'm talking about is that it feels like I have zero strength. It feels like I have just, you know, full pain, but 
if I actually go to try and produce some level of force, okay, it's like that it's there. My body can do that. Um, but there's a huge cost to it. It takes like a hundred times more energy out of me, um, you know, than it, than it would previously. So that, that was a weird, a weird kind of thing. And, um, in exercise, you know, physiology, one of the things I remembered studying was this phenomenon of, um, uh, the effects of sleep deprivation on, on training, um, something that a lot of athletes face. And just to give you an example, and we'll kind of relate this back to the Lyme experience, um, if you were to say, you know, pull an all nighter and then go back into the gym, you would probably be able to lift less than 50%, maybe far less than 50% of your normal, you know, load. Um, now the reason for that is not because your body suddenly lost 50% of its muscle mass. It's because your brain doesn't have the metabolites required to sufficiently recruit the muscle fibers needed to produce that force. So there is this brain level of activity that the brain is the driver of our movement, of our heartbeat, of a lot of different systems in, in the body. And so um, anyway, and all this to say, this kind of prompted or reopened that curiosity of like, I think there's, there's something to be said for the brain playing a role here. And that led me into uh, listening to some of these, these podcasts um, and going down the rabbit hole of, of neuroplasticity, um, which had been already, you know, very successfully applied to stroke victims and uh, people with lost limbs uh, and things we can get into there, like chronic pain. Ben, I want to interrupt there because I think there's several key points I just want to focus on. And absolutely, there is a connection between the, the brain and the physical body that you described in the exercise community that we see in the chronic Lyme community. And we're going to get into that and reorigin and all the great work you've done to give back to the community now that you're through your journey. But I, I also want to focus back on where you were in your journey at that point, right? Because you were at a place where you found little things that were helping you when you avoided nightshades that were creating inflammation, when you would, these little hacks, we'll call them. But I think it all comes back to what you described at the beginning of this podcast, where you said, we have this self-perpetuating inflammatory condition with chronic Lyme disease. And you were fighting that, right? At that point in your healing journey. And you were finding little hacks and tricks and tips to overcome that, but they weren't sustainable. They weren't something that, that were getting you through to stay beyond that threshold. Um, and you were, you were sort of struggling, but I do wanna also highlight some factual pieces before we move on with your journey, because especially being here in Long Island, right? In, in New York, where Lyme is so, is so prevalent, what doctors did you see, whether it was on Long Island, New York City, Connecticut, et cetera, that finally helped you get a diagnosis and began your, your care plan with treatment? Because many people are looking to seek out a good doctor to help them begin their journey. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So one of the doctors that had a really great um, you know, influence on me was Dr. Morrison and uh, Jerry uh, at the Morrison Center. Uh, others were uh, Dr. Manganero and Dr. Schultz at what at the time was Manhattan Advanced Medicine. Um this kind of, you know, was a eye-opening experience. I remember, I think it was Dr. Morrison who who said uh, something that really gave me a lot of hope. He said, you know, no medicine, whether pharmaceutical or supplement, will ever be as powerful as your body's own immune system, right? And so that kind of led me down the rabbit hole of of biological medicine and tuning into all these lectures uh, with Dr. Rao and eventually going to a lecture in, in Marion Institute in Massachusetts, um, you know, to learn about this, this idea of biological medicine. And, and basically a, a lot of these concepts have worked their way into, uh, you know, the formation of the reorigin program. But the basic tenet is that the 
the body really is a self-healing system. Um, we know that if we get a cut on our hand, uh, you know, it heals, um, provided that the environment is, is correct, that the wound is cleaned and cared for. But the, the care that we do isn't the thing that is healing the wound. It is the body itself that has that innate capacity to self-heal. And uh, I think it was Dr. Schultz, you know, told me another thing that was, you know, inspiring he, his philosophy around, you know, being a medical practitioner, he said, you know, it's not about perpetually managing sick patients. It's about reestablishing or restoring their own ability to self-manage and to self-heal. And little gems of wisdom like that, that came my way were so hopeful to me because they said that your body can heal. Your body does heal. That is what the body does. So then of course the question arises, well, if the body is self-healing, then why, why am I stuck? Why is this, what is this self-perpetuating loop, you know, that I'm stuck in? Um, yeah. And before, before we go on with that, I just want to focus on again, where you are, right? Because you're seeing some of the top doctors in New York city, Dr. Morrison in the Morrison center is a very popular Lyme treatment center. You're seeing a lot of other really good Lyme doctors. You treat with oral antibiotics, doxycycline, amoxicillin, IV rocephin. So you're getting yeah. hardcore IV antibiotics. You're getting IV detox aids and nutrients. You're doing alternative therapies and you make some progress, but you're still not where you want to be. You're, you're, you're crashing. You're doing a little bit better. You're mm -hmm. crashing and you're going through that pattern of just ups and downs. Right? So at this point is, I think the pivotal point where you're starting to absorb all this information about the body's innate ability to heal the immune system. And you're starting to now seek out these lecturers to go and learn more about that, to pivot where you are in your healing journey to try something else. Right. And that's kind of where we are right now. So you're in your mid twenties you you should be at you know the peak of your life but yet you are struggling just to survive and function in everyday life right is that where we are right now exactly right okay yep. so let's walk through the transition because you know i guess before we walk through the transition what, just give us an idea for our listeners how much did the oral antibiotics and the iv antibiotics help you because you said you were pretty much you built this permanent indentation in your mother's couch right so you were pretty much couch bound how mm -hmm. much did the we'll say traditional medicine through the morrison center etc help you heal. So give us an idea of where you were before, you know, before treatment and where you were at before this treatment, before you went on to start studying brain rewiring and neuroplasticity. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I'll just say that if I think of my journey, I'll actually, you know, think of it in, in there were three kind of phases to it. The first one I would, I would call conventional. Um, and that was really the bulk of where I was doing a lot of the antibiotics. The second phase I would call biological medicine. That's where I was getting into more of the natural stuff with Dr. Morrison and, uh, and Megan Arrow. And then the third phase is more of the, the neuroplasticity. So going back to your question, you know, the, the, um, antibiotic route, the more conventional route, um, I did not get any relief from that. Everyone is different. Some things, some, I know many people for, for which, you know, IV Rosefin worked, it did the, the, the trick, so to speak. Um, that was not my, uh, the case for me at all. Um, sometimes when switching to a new antibiotic, I would experience temporary relief as I learned antibiotics have an anti-inflammatory property. And if you can reduce even temporarily inflammation, you can, you know, keep symptoms at bay, but ultimately my experience was that I would get worse after each round. And it was like coming down another rung of the, of the ladder. And so I, again, everyone has a unique, you know, journey and experience, but for me, once I started to really get into this biological medicine mindset and understand the body as the self-healing mechanism and, you know, the, the game there becomes very much about improving the body's in what they call the internal milieu um or improving what's, what's milieu can you say that again and describe describe that term 
Yeah, the milieu we can think of as the body's internal environment. So this includes things like the gut microbiome, but it also includes like things like tissue pH in the interstitial tissue and the cells, everything within the body. Um, we know that we have a certain environment and in European biological medicine, they have a, a really interesting uh, model, which I don't think has made its way into uh, you know Western medicine really at all. They call it reactional modes. And one of the things they evaluate in patients is a person's reactional mode. And it's basically like a level of reactivity and also an ability uh, for the system to detoxify itself, uh, which is a huge, huge component of healing. And just to give you, you know, kind of a, an example of what these reactional modes are, there, there are four of them, reactional modes one through four. And so by analogy, someone who's like in a reactional mode one would be like someone who can go party all night, you know, drink, get two hours of sleep, wake up the next day and be fine. <laughs> that would be like a reactional mode one. Their body is very good at releasing toxicity, processing things and recovering quickly. Someone uh, like where I was, who was in like a reactional mode four by, you know, analogy would be like, if you take one sip of wine and you're hungover for three days, right? So it isn't just, here's the key takeaway that came to me is that there's two sides of the coin. There's what happens to you or there's what you're exposed to. And then there's how and why your body responds. And that is determined largely by this type of reactional mode. And that level of reactivity or how or why your, your body will, will respond is largely determined by the brain, which is the chief governing vessel uh, that presides over all of these organs and cells and systems, including the kidneys, the lymphatic system, uh, and the liver, and all of the detox mechanisms. Ben, before we get there, because now we have three phases to your journey, right? We have the conventional, we have the biological, and then we have the brain. So we, under, we understand the conventional and that the traditional antibiotics didn't really work well for you in your experience. Now we're on the biological side. Before we get into the, the brain side of your healing journey, can you give us some more specific details, biologically speaking, what you were doing with Dr. Morrison and these other alternative practitioners to treat with biological medicine, like some, some treatments, whether they're herbal, natural, et cetera, so our listeners can know exactly what you did, and then also tell us how they worked for you personally. Yeah, sure. So the, the biological medicine approach is kind of looking at where, where does the lightest touch have the greatest impact? Again, the fundamental principle is to reestablish your body's self-healing uh, systems. And like Dr. Morrison said, you know, nothing will ultimately be as powerful or potent as your body's own immune system. So the whole idea is like, rather than seeing the doctor or seeing yourself as the one doing the healing, your role becomes almost like a gardener. You are there to plant the seeds, to create the best conditions, to nurture the plants, and then allow the body to do its thing, to, to, to self-heal. So what does that look like from a practical standpoint? Um, there was some detoxification involved, starting with just some, uh, some supplements. Um, you know, we can get into specifics, but, you know, I, I will say, I certainly, after giving my, my TED talk, I got a ton of questions on social media um, about like, what was the, what was the thing you did? What, how many milligrams of vitamin C was it? And um, I'm happy, always happy to share, you know, the, the specifics and answer those questions. Uh, but I would just like to caveat it with, with that. Every person is very unique and 
you know, what's right for one person might not be right for, for another. So however many milligrams of vitamin C helped my system achieve, you know, homeostasis or, or, uh, you know, whatnot, um, might not be the, the right call for somebody else. Um, but basically when it comes to like the biological medicine intervention, uh, there was the first and foremost was nutritional medicine. So, uh, you know, continuing down that road of, for the time, removing the things that were, um, challenging my system. Um, there was, uh, I read Dr. Rao's book, uh, the Swiss secret to optimal health. Uh, Dr. Morrison was, I think very much aligned with that, uh, nutritional medical approach as well, um, with the addition of a little more protein, but basically it's a lot of, uh, you know, steamed vegetables, um, a lot of, uh, yeah, just healthy, organic foods, starting the day with lemon juice and water, things that can help to cleanse the system, removing things like caffeine, of course, uh, which can cause the body to, to sort of clamp down and ramp up into this more sympathetic dominant phase. So a lot of the biological medicine approach has to do with calming the nervous system uh, and doing that by um, removing the things that are challenging you. Those can be foods. Those can be if light and sound are challenging you for the, for the time, for me, you know, putting the garbage bags over the windows and silencing the phones, like that was what I needed for the time. Um, it's basically getting your body into this state where it can calm down, uh, become less reactive, and then additionally supporting it with some additional nutrients. And those things are pretty run of the mill. Like in my case, it was, I was on like a couple multivitamins, some fish oil, um, you know, a few basic supplements, there was nothing really too, too fancy going on there. Um, I think occasionally at Morrison center, I did some of the, uh, the IV, you know, B vitamins and stuff, but, you know, found that the impacts of that relatively fleeting, it's much more about the long-term, you know, building a supporting healthy internal milieu. Um, ben, on that note, so for sure. And I personally, and most people that come on this podcast learn and benefit from, you know, a high protein diet, low carbs, low gluten, low sugar, low dairy, right? Those things are, they, we avoid foods that are inflammatory. We take, we, we take on foods that, that enrich our body with nutrients. And those are really powerful tools. We, you know, these are all great things you're sharing with us, but as you got feedback from your, your TEDx talk, and we're going to get feedback from this podcast, I just know what people are going to ask us at the end of this, right? So if we just get a little bit deeper about uh, whatever you recall off top of mind, what specifically from a vitamin standpoint and an herbal standpoint and a supplement standpoint, you don't have to give doses, but just what things were you on? Um, and then, you know, our listeners can then take that to their practitioners and, you know, potentially look at that for themselves as well. If you have that at the top of mind, not to put you on the spot or anything, but our listeners very much like to get into the weeds and know exactly what you did at that phase to see if it can be applicable right. in their healing journey. Yeah, sure. So, um, like I mentioned, yeah, vitamin C, multivitamin, uh, uh, fish oil were, were kind of fundamentals. Uh, another one, when it comes to detoxification was spagyric medicine. This is a realm of medicine that's well-known in Germany and, and other parts of Europe, uh, not very well-known in the States. Um, there was a company at the time, Saluna, that I actually ended up uh, working for in some capacity because I found them so interesting um, that had a, a line of spagyric remedies. Uh, spagyric is basically uh, a form of plant medicine that is it combines the effects of of uh, homeopathy with actual plant matter so it's kind of like a combination of an herbal combined with a, a homeopathic and the idea and 
what I kind of liked about these, these, um, you know, uh, supplements, if we're to call them that, um, is that they are not really aimed at pushing your body to do one thing or the other, but instead to kind of like re restore the function of the organs of elimination. So in this case, uh, you know, I would take three different remedies. I think they were called renalin, hepatic, and, um, Aquavit. Uh, it's been a while, but those were the, those were the three. And again, I'm not sure if those are still available in the States or not. Um, but there are other forms of, of spagyric medicine, um, that can essentially help to, as I understand it, um, you know, rather than like upregulate the organs of elimination, whenever I hear like upregulate or downregulate, I always think I'm not so sure about this because it means that is that going to lead to a rebound effect when I stop taking this? The thing about spagyrics, again, as I understand it, and I'm not an expert uh, in, in supplementation or this field, is that they kind of support your organs to, to come back online and do what they normally do so that you don't need to keep on taking it forever. Um, so I think I was cycling on and off of that for uh, you know, maybe six to 12 months, um, and that seemed to be helpful. Um Again, I also did do some IV infusions uh, in the realm of detoxification. And um, yeah, all of these things in my experience, although certainly not directly uh, more over time, did seem to serve to start to lighten and reduce that total allostatic load that was putting pressure on the system. Um, I say not you know, immediately, because oftentimes I would get worse before I would get better. You know, you change one thing, you add one thing to the mix or tweak something. And it seemed to have all these other, you know, downstream effects. Um, but the long-term trend after about 12 months of this biological medicine type treatment is that I felt like I had more wiggle room. I felt like I had more, you know, more breathing room. Um, still, I will say it felt like I was carrying lead weights. And on those days when I, when I could push myself to the top. Um, as soon as I stopped pushing or struggling or exerting effort, it was like those lead weights would just drag me right back down to where I was before. Granted that baseline was a, a new baseline. It was higher than where I initially was at when I was doing all the antibiotics. Um, it wasn't nearly, you know, where I needed to be. Right. But you were no longer stuck you know, in this mold of your body and your mother's couch, but you were still not where you wanted to be health wise. And thank you for going to those details. Because again, people listening are looking for clues and tips and tricks. And I just want to, you know, repeat and spell because a lot of people are like, what does that mean, spagyric, right? So, and I'm probably saying it the wrong way, but it's S-P-A-G-Y-R-I-C medicine. And Correct. here, you know, just again, for our listeners, it's a European biological medicine modality that incorporates homeopathy, you know, herbs, and essentially pharmacology as well. So it kind of blends all these things together. And this is a huge, huge modality used at New York Center for Innovative Medicine, which is right here on Long Island. And we've you know, had a lot of people on this podcast have great success using spagyric medicine at New York Center for Innovative Medicine. And you know, to kind of recap what you said, they, they label it as being more effective, less toxic, more bioavailable, more concentrated, more dynamic, and more importantly, more, more gentle. So it doesn't spin your body into this overdrive to flare up and get even worse, right? So, but I think now this is a really important segue because you, you're Conventional medicine for you just did not work. Your biological medicine helped you, but you were still not where you wanted to be. And now here we are, you finally start to realize the importance of the brain. And we're transitioning to that brain side, right? The neuroplasticity side of your healing journey. So now if we can, Ben, let's geek out over the brain. 
let's geek out about what you learned and transition transition this into you know your development of reorigin because this is a really fun part of your story where I know Rich and I are going to want to jump in together. I can see Rich is already eager on the edge of his chair to jump in and, I, I and chat as well. So Ben, before we go there, uh, I do want to I do want to make sure that we don't suffer from recency bias here with uh, with the description of your of your journey, right? Because in many cases, what we have is people who are set up by the medical industrial complex to believe one pill, one solution, right? Mm-hmm. And and then what we what we often have is people on this podcast saying, well, I was ultimately able to overcome my symptoms because of X, but it really is the last thing they did rather than looking at the entire journey together. So just so that we don't suffer from that recency um, bias, uh, do you believe that there were benefits to each of these steps that ultimately allowed you to get to the point where now uh, dealing with the brain rewiring issue and the neuroplasticity allowed you to heal, but there was some benefit to the you know the first step in your journey. There was additional steps to the second uh, step in your journey, and then and then you were able to build on those steps, but without having those earlier foundational steps, your your successes with the uh, with the rewiring may not have been mm-hmm. um, may not have been successful so that people don't think hey well mm-hmm. I, I just don't need to see my doctor anymore I don't need to deal with herbals what I just need to do is brain rewire and uh, and and deal with the neuroplasticity and I'm going to get better mm-hmm. yeah absolutely I think that's a really really good point and th- these are all different pieces of the puzzle you know there's we have a brain we have a, a nervous system but we also have a physical body and we have to treat all of these aspects of ourselves and so just going back to the three phases and to answer your question i'd say for from the first phase the the main benefit was education um i i can honestly say i don't think that I, it didn't feel like it moved the needle in a positive healing direction for me with the conventional and the antibiotics that was just okay. my experience do you think it's possible um, let me let me let me stop you there do you think it's uh, possible that reducing the microbe load with all the antibiotics that you were taking was an important step so that you can then take a second step that would allow you to deal with the terrain issue right because you know one, one of the things that we uh, also see on this podcast is this bias that it's either a you know a find or kill or mm. it is a terrain issue. And quite frankly, I believe it's both. And I think most of our, I think both of totally. our, uh, all of our podcast guests collectively would probably, you know, uh, bring us to that point again. And that's, that's an age old battle, right? I mean, we know mm-hmm. that we know that at the time that germ theory was being developed, there was a terrain theory being developed at the same time by two great friends, right? And Matt and I are going to be writing a series of blog posts on old dead scientists, and we're going to we're going to deal with some of that. But it's both, right? I mean, it it, it is it is microbial, right? And what and, and this and your barrel being overwhelmed, as you had described so well before, and it was also your terrain or the barrel that you were holding it in was also also. Um, vulnerable uh in part i'm going to get to the brain piece but your your terrain was your terrain was uh was was not able to manage all these micros so between the first step which was you were you were on that kill phase and the second step which was the terrain phase and then got you to the point where you could now be healthy enough to start to uh discover the you know the the basic human superpower of neuroplasticity yeah absolutely well i think the syntax is really important here and um we can't one of the challenging things with lyme disease is we can't really know how 
uh, effective uh, a thing is like antibiotics from a bacterial load perspective. We can't really measure what, anything we're measuring insofar as, you know, Lyme testing is our body's reaction to Lyme. It's, it's antibodies. It's, we're not able to d- directly detect the, the total load. So we don't know if the antibiotics did reduce the load or sent it into biofilms or L forms or all these other things, you know, um, just from my experience in that phase of the journey, uh, it's very possible it could have it could have set up for future you know success in some way. So I don't want to discount that possibility. Um, that isn't how it felt at the time. I think the the biological medicine stuff uh, really did help and 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 make a lot of sense. And I, y- you hit something really interesting that was a pivotal point for my mindset too. And I remember a really big sort of question I asked when I when I thought about this is that okay, there's the We'll call it the conventional approach, which says that the pathogen is everything. Kill the pathogen and all the problems will go away. All right. So that's one uh, paradigm. The other paradigm is the, we'll call it the biological medicine approach, which says that the pathogen is nothing. Just fix the terrain and the body will take care of itself, including kick out the pathogens. I kind of looked at this and said, well, is there a middle ground? You know, can we do both? And in fact, there are some people that are doing both. And at the time, uh, Manhattan Advanced Medicine, Dr. Manganero, which is now um, the New York Center for Innovative Medicine, or yeah, has been associated with them, um, is kind of taking that that you know approach where they are in in a certain syntax, uh, you know, sort of setting the body up for success using biological medicine. Again, pretty light touch stuff. Um, and then uh, doing some forms of antimicrobials uh, and things like that, but not not in the realm of antibiotics, using more natural therapies. Um, and then, you know, uh, con- continuing with detoxification. And so that is something that I found from like that total load perspective did have a big impact. You know, uh, again, we are brains, but we're physical bodies. And so reducing a lot of that uh, that load, whether it was actually reducing the pathogen or just reducing toxicity levels in the body that gave me more resilience and helped my immune system to, to more effectively fight the pathogen. We will never really know exactly how it was, you know, uh, what was going on, but absolutely. I did find that to be a, you know, a substantial rung of the, of the pyramid that allowed me to settle on a new baseline. So, and, and, and it is important, you know, so that we're, you know, we're transparent here with our listeners is that, you know, everyone wants a, you know, a quick solution, but there is no quick, quick solution to a chronic illness. There just simply isn't. There are solutions and there is a journey and you've outlined that journey for us. Uh, but unfortunately, again, I'll go back to the recency bias argument. Um, you know, each phase of this journey is an important phase of the journey and you have to build upon each step in order to be able to get to a place where you're successful. But the piece, of course, that seems to be most neglected in the in the Lyme community is, of course, the uh, the brain piece, right? And the question always is, when do we bring that brain piece in? Because we've had podcast guests uh, in the past, for example, Dorothy Leland from uh, LymeDisease.org shared with us that when her daughter went on her journey, she, she remained symptomatic until she went through a brain retraining process, right? I mean, that was a necessary piece. So we've had that on our radar for a long time. And when we've talked with uh, when we've talked with uh, other guests about this and uh, about introducing this rewiring piece into their journey earlier rather than later, right? Rather than as sort of a, as a rehabilitation piece, but maybe as a prehabilitation piece. Um, what we, the reaction that we've gotten from our guests uh, and Ashley Marber, for example, is um, 
his, um, oh, I'm sorry, Ashley Bellinger, I'm messing, Bellinger. messing up our Ashley's, had said, Rich, I was so sick, I couldn't have done it. I, I just couldn't do any retraining when I was that sick. So give me first, give me your reaction to that. And then let's talk about, let's talk about the brain and the role it plays in, in, in healing. Yeah. So, you know, first, I think there's, there's many, many, many different roads to healing, uh, not just one. Um, and that involves, you know, different, um, different sort of syntax. Also, it's very easy for, for all of us to anyone to fall into a, a kind of binary mindset of like, do this or not do this, not realizing that are that there are different shades of things, there are different levels or extents to which you can do something. Um, well, for sure, every everyone, yeah. you, every single healing plan has to be an individualized healing plan. I, I absolutely agree with that. But there are some models that other people have used successfully to heal, and when those models when those models are available to each one of us, we can then use those models to build our individualized treatment plan, right? Because one of the things you shared with us was that you were you were you were really hurt when you interacted with the medical community and you believed that they had the capacity to heal you and that they would have models to heal you and they didn't right because we get set up by the industrial medical uh system um to uh to believe that they can heal us when they can't right i mean our body heals itself and what we have to be trained to do or, or what we have to be assisted uh, in, in doing is, is is your language was to um to reestablish the self-healing system and if we're going to establish a self-healing system, that what we should be doing is working with medical professionals who are not going to take a position that they're going to be our heroes and heal us, but they're going to help us to learn what models will be available to us. And then our, we'll get feedback from our system about whether or not we are, in fact, reestablishing the healing system. Yeah, yeah, very true. All right, so let's 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 take the next step, right? So Matt and I have been, you know, talking with you for for a long time, but we needed to lay that foundation to properly um, get to this point now, uh, because we didn't want this to be TED Talk Point Two 2.0. We wanted to really <laughs> dig in and give people the foundation for where you are. And now you get to this point now where you where you discover the superpower that we all have, right? Now this is something we all have. This is not an individualized piece, which we were just talking about a moment ago for healing. Everyone has this superpower and everyone should be using this on their healing journey, unless you disagree with that. Uh, no, I, I have to say, I fully agree with that. We have this, this power, this tool at our disposal. And, um, yeah, I think we can, we can use it. And I think we can re we can introduce it in different ways at different times. And I can certainly, certainly share how, I uh, introduced it to you know to myself or what my inroad was. Please do, do that because I because yeah. we do want to talk about we do want to talk about you know when on the journey these tools should be introduced. So talk about how you introduced it into your journey, and then let's talk about whether or not there were there were other opportunities for you had you been aware of this at an earlier stage in your journey. Yeah. Okay. So going back to the definition of neuroplasticity, again, neuroplasticity is just the brain's natural ability to change its structure and function. And the reason this is so important when it comes to, to health and specifically to chronic or any sort of self-perpetuating condition is that the brain plays a key role in regulating a whole host of bodily functions. And so if we can kind of intentionally in a way signal or condition the brain to, um, to operate in a different way, it can kind of filter down and have, um, you know, far reaching effects into other parts of the body. So that being said, most of the time, uh, well, actually let me back up for one second. 
Now, the way that I'm going to talk about neuroplasticity is a little bit different. It's more in, in the realm of an action, something that you can do. It's the, it's the intentional action of consciously changing your brain function. Most of the time, our brains are changing pretty constantly without us knowing. Anytime we learn a new skill, you see someone and you memorize a new face, your brain has changed and created new neural pathways associated with that um, with that pattern, whether a movement pattern or a visual pattern. Um, so neuroplasticity is always happening. But what we're going to talk about here is um, intentionally directing that neuroplasticity to happen in a very specific way. Okay, but before we get there, we have to talk about why we need to do that and how as adaptive beings, right? I mean, we are we are the apex predators on the earth. We are the we are the dominant species because we're the most adaptive species, right? And that's actually what Charles Darwin said. Not that we're the survival of the fittest, which is not attributed, it should not be attributed to, to Charles Darwin, because that was actually one of his one of his uh, one of his students. He he said that we we are the apex predators because we are the most adaptive species, right? So we are adaptive, right? We can change. Our brain can change on a regular basis. But before you get to the piece of, of, of intentionally changing your brain, I think we have to talk about why you need to intentionally change your brain. Because, right, because, you know, this elegant microbe that is, uh, or these series of microbes that are, that are, uh, that are um, affecting us and making us chronically ill are also changing us to, during the acute phase of our illness. It's it, our, our, our adaptive brain is actually adapting in response to the acute phase of the illness. And it's actually, it's actually now wiring us to be sick, right? And that's what was happening with you. So before you get to intentionally changing it, talk about how it was changed unintentionally mm. by the illness and why you then need to make that change. I want you to make that piece. I want you to define that piece first. Yeah, sure. That's a really good point. So as you mentioned, you know, we have evolved to do really one thing really well, which is survive. And the brain's first order of business is to ensure our survival. Its second order of business is efficiency. It wants to expend as little energy as possible. And the way that it does that is by creating associations. We can call this, I think of this as like shortcuts, exactly, short codes, right? So if you think about walking as a great example, walking is a very, very complex movement pattern that involves you know, hundreds of micro motions. Um, if we know that it took a period of time for us to learn how to walk. For some of us, it takes you know a few months to a few years, but it takes time because the brain is, is modulating and adapting and wiring in this very complex movement pattern. But once it is wired in, fortunately, we don't have to think about you know, flexing the calf muscle and then the hamstring and then the quad and then raising the ankle and all of these sequences. The brain just automatically deploys the walking pattern right? And that is a result of neuroplasticity and, and, and that, um, you know, second order of business, which is efficiency. Okay. So let's go, let's, let's stay with the efficiency piece. And, and let's talk about how you identified that your brain efficiency was being affected during this journey, right? Because you gave the example in your TED talk, and this is the, what I thought about when you were giving your TED talk is, is that your brain over time had 
created these shortcuts to identify what a shoe was, right? Shoes could be sneakers, shoe could be clogs, shoe could be, could, could be, uh, you know, it could be a lot of different things, right? And that, and that was a shortcut that your brain now could no longer utilize because your brain was no longer, your brain was being affected and the shortcuts that your brain had identified for shoes or doorknobs or any of these other things were now being affected, right? Exactly right. And that's a really good point because in the brain's infinite wisdom, there is a hierarchy, right? Going back to that first point of survival being the number one thing, the hierarchy stems from there. So one of the associations that the brain can make is the association between a pathogen or an active infection or even uh, infection that could be no longer active um, and in what it deems as an appropriate immune response. Right. That is probably one of the most important associations. You know, pathogen comes in, the body responds, and we want it to respond that way. We want that. In, in, people think of an inflammation as bad, but inflammation is good. <laughs> in the acute phase, inflammation is what catalyzes the healing response. And so we want that immune, you know, activation. We want that inflammation because that's ultimately what can help to, uh, you know, attack the, the pathogen or heal the wound. Um, now, the challenge is, when that immune activation and that threat activation stays active for longer than that acute phase. And at that point, because the body is a relatively finite system of resources, the brain now starts preferentially shutting down what it deems as these secondary functions or secondary resources, uh, even things like, you know, digestion and wound healing and, uh, you know, uh, uh, hormones and chemicals needed for procreation. Those will take a far back seat to what it sees as the more immediate threat uh, to your survival, which is this fighting off this, this infection. And similarly, it will also break or deprioritize uh, certain cognitive connections. It's not important to know what your shoes are for. It's not important to know how to use a doorknob when you are when your life is at stake in that moment. You know, here's where the the challenge lies. There's a misclassification that can happen where the brain has, because it is so wired up for survival and it is so primed to identify things as threats so that it can deploy that defensive mechanism, it can sometimes get it wrong. And it can sometimes classify, or I should say misclassify uh, things that are challenging to the system, unpleasant, undesired for sure, but not immediately life-threatening. It can classify those as life-threatening and set off that whole biochemical and hormonal cascade that, again, draws all of these resources away from other longer-term uh, healing and maintenance functions of the body. So it's stuck fighting even though the, the fight should be over. Correct. All right. So now, so now uh, let's talk about one more piece. And then I want you to talk about, you know, your, your program. And that is that we do have a binary brain, right? We have, we have, we have the sympathetic and parasympathetic state. We, and, and what, what is going to be happening. And, and again, we, you, you describe our brain as this organ that is, um, is, um, you know, resource dependent. Uh, we, our brain uses more resources than any other brain and any other species um, on earth, right? And, and because uh, it uses so much resources, it has, to, it has to find efficiencies and you describe them as, you know, or I describe them as shortcuts and you, you accepted my, my definition, right? So we have, we have that piece, we have this binary brain. Right now our brain gets triggered into fight or flight 
right? We're, we're, we're in the sympathetic uh, nervous state and now we're stuck in the sympathetic nervous state, right? We can't, we can't get out of that state. And as a result of not being out of that state, we now have all this inflammation, right? And because right. we have all this inflammation, our body is now symptomatic, even though the microbes may not still be uh, alive. They might not be alive, but they might be alive too. And this is where something like Lyme disease is so challenging because going back to that concept of the immune system being the most powerful thing, um, what enables the immune system to be powerful is, is immune modulation. It's not pressing the foot on the gas and constant in, you know, generation of inflammatory processes, um, because that we know wears down other systems. It wears down the adrenal glands. It burns out metabolites in the brain. It leaves us feeling depleted, anxious, depressed. Um, and it also can ramp up <clears throat> systemic inflammation in the body, which can change tissue pH. And going back to that concept of the internal milieu, it basically creates an environment that is more acidic and more hospitable to pathogens to persist. So here we have a really classic vicious cycle whereby, you know, you're, you're, your brain and particularly the section of the brain called the limbic system, which is the threat detection and response, you know, mechanism with the very best of intentions is stepping on the gas is, you know, producing all this, this inflammation, trying to help you trying to kick out the pathogen. But then what happens is the body gets sort of stuck reacting to its own reactions. The brain processes the symptoms themselves as further threats and mounts more of that immune response uh, to fight off those, those symptoms. And so this just keeps on going and that leads to the, the, the fatigue, the burnout, the utilization of all these vital resources and paradoxically leaves our body and our immune system in a state where it's not optimized to actually fight the pathogen. And so we do end up with a, you know, a, a sort of position where we are more susceptible now to either persisting uh, pathogenic infections or even secondary infections, colds and flus, you know, to come on. And I remember when I was going through Lyme, I would constantly get sick with, you know, additional colds and flus and things like that, because in a way the defense systems were worn out. Ben, okay. can you just, oh. I just want to jump in here because I think this is an important topic because I myself, after getting treatment, I was sick every couple of months and just bed bound for a week. Right. And then I, and nobody around me was getting as sick as I was. And I think the, the, the connection that I didn't understand back then is our brains and our nervous systems are creating a more acidic environment in our bodies and therefore making our bodies more hospitable to illness and reinfection and other things that are just more opportunistic as well, Ben, right? Is that what you're saying here? And now with brain rewiring, we can really reset that and alter that so we're no longer stuck in this state and we can go back to the way we were before being chronically ill. I'm, I'm trying to oversimplify it, but I think it's an mm -hmm. important note for listeners to understand because it's a complex topic that we need to really implement in our lives to have sustainable health. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Very close. So it's it's being in that chronic elevated state, that chronic fight or flight or, or sympathetic dominant state um, that changes the internal milieu, changes tissue pH, inhibits natural detox functions, um, and creates this you know internal state of, of tension and buildup of toxins, which again is unfortunately hospitable or more hospitable to these opportunistic pathogens. All right. So, so now, so we, we've, we now agree that the adaptive nature of our brain, um, or the neuroplasticity 
has been used against us by the microbes, right? And you're now arguing that you've come up with a tool that will allow you to take control of your neuroplasticity and change what has been changed, uh, what has been negatively changed by the disease. Yeah, so I'd say I, I haven't come up with the tool. The tool has actually been hiding in plain sight for 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 really for decades. There's research going back to the the 60s and early 1970s. I think it was 1971. Seminal paper came out called "Conditioned Immunosuppression," uh, where they had done experiments, uh, you know, giving uh, rats injections of I think it was E. coli virus. Uh, combined with a dextrose solution, uh, sugar water. Uh, they did this many times, you know, through the acquisition phase to see what impact that would have. And then, uh, you know, after some time, they would just give them the dextrose solution with no traces of the pathogen. And they found that the um, they would still have the same immune reaction. So they've known since the 60s and 70s that there is this learned component to infections. And a lot of this research came back to light last year in a paper that was published in Scientific American uh, called The Brain Has a Special Kind of Memory for Past Infections. So there is this sort of, you know, triggering and there's a lot of research, uh, you know, supporting that. I think what's, what's more recent is um, developing a set of protocols and tools that can help us interject. And again, a lot of these existed and were uh, being applied successfully in other arenas. Um, when we talk about self-directed neuroplasticity, we're kind of getting in and, and you know actively changing these patterns. One of the first applications for that was um, was stroke victims, was regaining uh, the use of limbs that the brain had lost connection with. Uh, another one was chronic pain, uh, where they they realized that there is this this perceptual component to it. And they kind of make this, this uh, distinction between what they call peripheral pathology, which is, um, you know, uh, an indication of, of some message that your brain is getting as a result of some actual damage or change, uh, you know, in your, in your body versus what's known as central sensitization, which is basically an increased level of sensitivity um, in the neurons taking, taking signals from certain, you know, areas of the, um, of the body. So, <clears throat> yeah, I think there's, um, there's a lot to be said for this conditioning effect that takes place. But the key takeaway here is that the brain effectively is always learning in that aid to number one, protect you. And number two, uh, create these shortcuts. It makes associations. And when it learns that a certain symptom that maybe initially was triggered by a pathogen, but can persist beyond the pathogen, when a certain symptom has been associated with stress or danger, that symptom alone can produce the inflammatory, uh, impact that in a roundabout way causes that symptom. Right. So, so the, so the, the memory of the contact with the microbe results in a, an inflammatory response, which then creates a terrain, which makes it more likely that you're going to suffer a reinfection or a relapse, all just based on the memory or the, or the, uh, the shortcut that had been built in the brain based on the prior experience. Exactly right. 
So um, you you were kind enough to say that you did not come up with the solution, but you but it was hiding in plain sight. But you are but you did start to use the solution for your health, and you're now trying to share that with the rest of the Lyme community and the chronic community generally. Mm-hmm. So talk to us about what you discovered about rewiring and how that helped you on your journey. Yeah. So for me, it started with a. a- pretty profound experience I had. Um, and I became that this became the title of my Ted talk It's one deep breath. Uh, this was in a time where I was at a pretty low point in my healing. I had undergone biological medicine, made some progress, but was in that state where I was still feeling very much stuck. Every time I tried to push forward, I would be met with an equal and opposite force in the opposite direction that seemed to, you know, exacerbate symptoms, trigger all that fatigue and basically land me back on the couch. So in this state, I remember a certain, uh, an actual certain instance where um, things were just becoming all too much. The physical symptoms, the fatigue was there. Uh, It started to spin up into this narrative, this story in my mind about how I'll never move forward. It had already been two and a half years at this point, um, trying everything I could think to try. Um, And it was like a, it felt like a full on panic attack, you know, physical, mental, emotional symptoms, just absolute uh, panic. And I like to think that it was some higher wisdom or some part of me, maybe one neuron that had some higher intelligence um, prompted my, my body to do maybe the only thing that I really could do in that moment, which was to just take one deep breath. And I let out this big kind of sigh of relief. And then right on the other side of that sigh was something that I hadn't experienced for years, maybe not even in my whole life. It was this little microsecond of like total peace, of total lack of resistance is the best way to frame it. I wasn't, for the first time, I wasn't pushing against anything. It was just, yeah, it felt like the the tight restrictive t-shirt that I had been wearing had just suddenly loosened into this giant blouse. And I was just there. And as quickly as it came, it passed. But what remained was the, the awareness that that, that was there. And so I was like, okay, that that's interesting. I wonder if I can get back there again. What did I do to get there the first time? Well, I, I took this like deep breath and let out this big physiologic sigh. So I did it again and it didn't work. <laughs> I gave it some time and I did it again and it didn't work. And, you know, a couple of times more and I tried it again and then it did work. And so I realized that there was this thing that I, it's not like I could hit the bullseye every time, but every once in a while, there it is. I would find that little pocket and I would just savor that pocket. And so, as I mentioned in my talk, like that became my only goal. (laughs) That became the only thing I felt I could control. I can't control whether today is the day that I can walk into the kitchen or not, whether today is the day that I recognize my shoes or not. I think I can, if I remind myself, I can control this. I can, I can take one deep breath. I can't guarantee what's going to happen on the other side of that, but I can just do this action no matter what. And that's what I did. And the okay, but so let's 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 re, let's deconstruct that one breath and the impact that it had on your Olympic system and 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 the impact that it was having on uh, on calming your amygdala and ultimately causing you to have a moment where you were out of the sympathetic state and you were in the parasympathetic state. Right. And you now realize that there were tools that could be available to you that could take you out of fight or flight, put you in rest and digest. And that would not only take you out of the suffering that you're in, but perhaps put you in a position where you could get into a healing state. 
Yeah. Yeah. And thanks for breaking it down that way. Cause that, that is really at the, the crux of it. And, and something that um, I didn't realize I was doing or was happening at the time, but in retrospect, as I started to learn more of this, basically that one deep breath was serving as a pattern interrupt. It was serving to break this perpetual, uh, you know, loop that was keeping me in chronic fight or flight. And um, as I'm sure you've heard the, the quote by Viktor Frankl, between stimulus and response, there's a space. And in that space lies our freedom to choose a new response. Now, what Viktor Frankl doesn't include in that quote is that when you get in that space, to do it once is great, but to actually make a change such that your default state of being changes requires getting in that space repeatedly, repetition over and over and over again, and continuously making that new choice to settle into that or drop into that, you know, relaxed state right after. So Ben, let's, uh, let's talk about that piece, because I think that's an important piece. And it's actually the way we define freedom on our line freedom formula with Dr. Frankel's definition. Um, so, you know, when we talk about responsibility, we're talking about responding with ability, right? And what that really means is that that space between an event and our response is when we can, when we have the ability to be free and you discovered with your, with that one breath that, um, that you had that space between, between the parasympathetic and the sympathetic space and, and, and that you had the ability to have control of that you could now respond with ability, right? And that's what you discovered with that one breath, despite not knowing what that one breath was at that moment. But, you know, the brilliance of that, of the way your brain was still able to work despite being so sick and understanding that that moment was freedom for you was, was the foundation of everything you've built since then. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And and the the so the more I practice this, the more consistently I could get myself there. If at first it happened once every, you know, one out of 10 times, that was lucky, you know. Um, but the more I practice it, the more consistently I could get there. And the more I did that, the more I got there, the more I could widen that gap and sustain that. So what was a fraction of a second the first few times, you know, eventually after a few days and few weeks became a second, a full second, which when you haven't experienced a second of calm in, in years, that second is something really to be savored. Um, interestingly enough, and we can you know caveat this or, or come, come back here, um, there's been a lot of research into uh, savoring. Uh, Yale, uh, the science of happiness or science of well-being, their most popular course that they put online for free, um, goes deep into the neurobiology of savoring. And um, one of the Reorgen members recently asked, when I'm feeling good, is there anything I can do to capitalize off of that good feeling to make that more enduring? And I said, absolutely. In a word, you can really savor it because what you're doing effectively is you are establishing stronger neural neuronal connections with that peaceful place. So when you savor something, you're really, you know, sending a lot of um, energy and intention down those neural pathways and it actually thickens them. It creates wider, thicker, more functional pathways that are easier uh, for those uh, chemicals to travel down at a later time. So yeah, it was a process of just, okay, increase the frequency that I'm going to take this deep breath and also increase the duration by getting in that gap and savoring that little bit of peace. Um, and this is where the really interesting thing started to happen for me is that the more I did that, the better I felt. I actually felt less reactive 
over time, I felt less symptomatic because my body was not spending so much resources fighting its own symptoms and reactions more energy started to come online and into the system. I had more available uh, resources for cognition. I started thinking a little bit more clearly. So that brain fog started to subside. And this was not a linear process. This was not like a, you know, <laughs> onward and upward. This was, I absolutely had good days and I had really not good days, but it was a trend over time. So talk to us um, about the course correcting that had to take place when you were on this journey of improving um, your your ability to savor or celebrate, right? Because there are going to be things that are going to interfere with our ability to celebrate or to, I'll use your term, to savor the successes that you're having, right? One of the things we often see in, in our community is that folks will then have some other issues that they have to deal with, right? And I'm wondering whether or not you had to deal with any feelings of whether or not you now deserved to have this freedom that you now had. And you did hint to us early on in this podcast that you had to work through some challenges that you had from your childhood. There had been some childhood issues that, you know, and let's talk about that, how our childhood experiences, many before we're even seven years old and cognitively aware of those experiences, now become shortcuts in our brain. And in many cases, those unhealthy shortcuts that are that are uploaded into our brain uh, then interfere with our ability to go through the process of savoring or celebrating our successes, which then make it harder for us to have the myelin sheath thicken and become a, 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 a more um, a more healthy um, neural pathway. Oh, yeah, 100%. You're, you're, you're speaking to my experience completely. The, the, I think the, the thing I noticed, and maybe it took me a while to consciously realize this, but that what would kick me out of that peaceful place, you know, that place I could get to for a second was what it would be immediately followed by, which is, I can't stay here. Like that's, you know, and I don't know if it's partially coming from a place of, you know, un unworthiness or, but in some level it's, it's beyond psychological. It really felt neurological that my brain and body had just been conditioned to not allow myself to settle. Right. That is something I remember most prominently and took me a long time to, to decondition is that even, okay, even when I understand now mechanically what to do to get in that space between stimulus and response, and I understand neurobiology from a neurobiological perspective, that savoring is a good thing. And that, and I know how to do that. There was this almost reflexive response that would kick me out of it. And that response was very much like, Oh no, like we don't settle here. Like we, we, we visit here, but we don't actually stay here. And so, um, of course, to, to your point, like, yes, there's emotional components there. Um, I have a friend who's on the tail end of recovery from, uh, uh long COVID now. And, and he said something really interesting to me the other day, he came to this realization just very recently. He said, this is a medicine, you know, this, this, um, this COVID for me was, was a medicine. And I said, wow, you know, that's, that's an interesting perspective. And that's a perspective that took me a long time to get to with, with the Lyme is that um, it, it is a guide in a lot of ways that can wreak havoc and certainly does. And it can also at the same time, illuminate things that were always there, right? That we're contributing to that allostatic load, that total load we mentioned in the beginning that we're just waiting to be released or addressed or recognized in some way. And so, you know, again, for me, it started with kind of what I 
think of as the low hanging fruit, like, okay, there's some nutritional patterns and habits and stress lifestyle patterns that, you know, it's shown the spotlight on first that these are the things you can, can and should change and changing those as, as I mentioned, like, you know, created a little more buffer, a little more wiggle room, a little less reactivity. Then the next level comes in. Then there's the, you know, the, the, the trauma responses, the, the, the tension, the stress that has built up over, a lifetime of being human. We all have it. And there's been really interesting studies that have been, you know, widely spoken about now, these ACE scores, you know, adverse childhood experiences where they've directly correlated uh, the number or the the extent to which people have experienced adverse childhood experiences. And they have a whole way of defining what those are uh, with the likelihood uh, of coming down with a chronic illness or, or experiencing things like chronic pain and depression. So Ben, let's stay there for a second and focus on that because like, these adverse childhood experiences aren't necessarily the result of trauma that you've experienced yourself. Although of course that would be an adverse uh, childhood experience, but it could be experiences that your parents were having during your childhood, which then uploaded into your brain, even though they weren't particularly traumatic to you. So there could be situations where you were, you, you know, you suffered physical violence or sometimes you could suffer emotional um, trauma, but there are times where there's just trauma around you and, and certainly in this precognitive phase before seven years old, they get uploaded as, as shortcuts into our brain and they become, they become uh, unfortunately, uh, unhealthy loops that limit our ability to heal in many cases. Yeah, I mean, there's, there's uh, a number of rabbit holes to go down here. Uh, but we also know that there is, you know, to, to, to a point you mentioned, uh, there is this uh, theory of acquired traits, which is seems to be proving true the more they, they research it. And we know that uh, stress patterns and cortisol can be transferred in utero to, to the fetus. A friend of mine actually uh, founded an uh, organization called Expectful uh, that's aimed at helping uh, pregnant mothers uh, reduce the level of stress for that reason, to inhibit passing on those stressful states or, or high cortisol states to the fetus, to the child. Um, and even, you know, beyond that stress patterns and, and reactive pattern, I mean, on some level, it's like, okay, there's a lot of science that's interesting and, and everything here on, on an anecdotal level, it's sort of fairly obvious. Like we know we get certain patterns from our parents. It's not that mysterious. Uh, and we know about epigenetics and how, you know, things can, can get passed down and how things can change to bring it back to a really hopeful place. Um, we also know that we can have a tremendous amount of influence on our genetic expression. And, um, you know, I've heard it said that um, roughly a third of, of the genes, you know, are are uh, kind of set and two thirds, that means are, are within our control or two thirds of the, the genetic expression are within our control. So we have a tremendous amount of control. And one of the things we, we have to acknowledge that we do not have control over is what our parents went through or what, even what we went through as a child. Um, or, sure, whether, or what infections we were exposed to. We, we certainly don't have control over, over those experiences, but we have control over the way, uh, the shortcuts that are built into mm -hmm. our brain that we use to either serve us or not serve us. And that's really what you're, you're teaching, right? And that's what your course is, is designed to do, to help people not only identify these issues, right? And I agree with you that, that we don't want to, we don't want to lag and spend too much time talking about them other than to identify that it is a part of the human experience it's a part of the you know of the terrain or we use your term milieu that 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 every one of us has and just recognizing that it's a normal part of the human experience and recognizing that that is having an impact on our ability to either fight off 
the microbes in the first place or on how we're going to respond after we do come in contact with the microbes, we have control. We are adaptive beings. We have, a, uh, we have neuroplasticity in our brain. We have epigenetic uh, tools in our body. And, I, and, and I, I would take issue about whether or not it's one third, two thirds. I think it's substantially less than, than, uh, than one third um, of our genetic expression is coded with proteins. I think it's much, much less. So because we are such an adaptive machine, and because we have, as you had defined so, uh, I think, eloquently, that space between an event and our response, we have superpowers that we can use to heal. And again, I, I agree with you that everyone's path has to be individualized. But one of the things that every one of us has is the ability to use our neuroplasticity and our epigenetics to heal. Do you agree? I 100% agree. Yeah. We can absolutely strongly influence uh, the changes that uh, occur in our, in our brain and body. And one thing I want to, you know, clarify here because two things actually, one is that it's very easy initially. And I totally understand this myself because I, I was there when I started to learn this stuff. Um, when we start to think about neuroplasticity and the brain, and even if you do some of this stuff and you, and you start to get better or you experience some benefit from it, one of the first thoughts that can come up for a lot of people definitely came up for me is, wait a minute, if this stuff works, does that mean that this was in my head, right? Does that mean that that it was that the, you know the psychiatrist was right and that it was depression or it was perception and it wasn't quote unquote real well the reality is that the the where this really breaks down is in our cartesian dualism separating the body from the brain the body is the brain the brain through the central nervous system literally unfolds itself into every aspect of the body. It touches the viscera, the internal organs, and it touches the skin. A good friend of mine is an osteopath said that your, your physical body is like a touch screen is how he described it. The brain is the central processor, but all of the senses, which are two-way streets, extend out to every organ, cell, and system in the body. So it is absolutely the case that this can be, I, I always say, you know, it's not psychological, it's neurological. And these conditions are full brain body conditions. What you're experiencing is real. The symptoms are absolutely real and they exist in the body and they are measurable as they certainly were in, in my case, but they are also in part modulated and regulated uh, by the brain. And this is where we have um, an immense amount of, of control. And there's more and more, uh, you know, exciting research, uh, you know, showing that we can actually modulate our own stress responses and what impacts that can have on the physical body. So Ben, uh, you know, we, we talked about how we on this podcast and on our platform want to take control of terms because definitions matter. And you've corrected me on a number of different occasions during this podcast with the language that that we've used and, and the definitions that we've used, right? But we have to take control of that, that thought process, which is it's all in your head. Because you know what? It is all in your head. And that's a good thing because once we understand how our brain works and, and you so eloquently define that relationship between the brain and our body, uh, then 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 we are no longer offended by the by the reality of it really being all in our head because it is all in our head and uh, and and the solution to the problem at least uh, at least in your case 
was to understand that it was all in your head, to understand that you had control over what was happening in your head, and understand that because of the because of the adaptive nature of your brain and your body, that you were able to use the freedom that Dr. Frankel had defined as a vehicle for healing. Yeah, and I, I would just say that it it starts and it ends in your head, right? When something is, is triggered by a certain brain pattern, it can produce you know, inflammation, it can produce real changes that are absolutely in the body. So not in the head, but actually in the body. Um, but then the results of those changes, meaning the, the symptoms or the sensations that we experience, again, are perceived in the brain. So yes, it starts in your head, it ends in your head, but it loops into your body. But but it's but but it is all in your head, right? And we should we should we should own that term rather than having that term term used as a way of gaslighting us. It's a term we should use to celebrate, right? I mean, we we were we were using we were using that as an issue, right? Because one of the things I remember Dr. Harwood saying in in one of the podcast interviews we did, he says, "Yeah, it's all in your head. You have you have bugs in your brain, mm-hmm. right? And because you have bugs in your brain, you're going to necessarily going to have." these these changes that are taking place in your brain right so i want to talk to you about uh one last thing at, at, uh on, on this topic and then uh and then i want to bring some observations in about my work with matt because i really love your perspective on matt's healing journey because i've had the blessing of interviewing almost 350 people who have been on a lyme disease journey and watched them heal but at the same time i've been on this journey with matt sabatella right and i've watched him heal and i've watched him learn from you know the people you've interviewed and watched him get better and i'd like to get your perspective them. Before I get there, though, I want to ask you about um, about the five different ways our brain may be, and, I, and again, I just came up with these five based on doing <laughs> some research on you and, and and some of the work that you've done, right? So uh, one of the things we talked about was is that that our um, you know our brain could make adaptive changes which are not going to service, meaning going to cause us to be sick if we have these precognitive uploads that are brought into our brain based on the human experience. And you actually pointed out that could happen in utero, right? So that's one way that our brain could be altered so that so that um, uh, it will we will have these uploads that will not serve us. Uh, we talked about trauma, right? We could have traumatic experiences, both physical and emotional trauma that could cause us to 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 have these uploads that again, triggering us uh, into a sympathetic state. We can have microbes in our brain and, and you actually showed in your TED talk an image of your brain at one time and an image of your brain your second time and you had those arrows on it and you had lesions on your brain before and then you didn't have lesions on your brain the second time, right? So these, you could have, you could have, um, you could have these uh, these bugs in your brain that literally attacking and eating your brain, which happened with you, right? Um, we could also have environmental toxins that are in our brain, right? And we've learned about that from a number of our guests. Dr. Uh, Alan McDonald actually showed us slides with how dirty the Lyme bacteria is. And it's like spitting off all kinds of like spinning, you know, all kinds of junk and toxins and they can get into our brains, right? So all of these things can be getting into our brains and because we have this adaptive brain, this uh, this uh, neuroplastic brain, when we're not in that space where we understand where our freedom is, the brain gets altered on us and this really diabolical microbe using, again, another another one of Dr. McDonald's terms, actually is using our, our, um, our, our adaptivity against us. Exactly. And when we're in that hyperreactive state, in that sympathetic dominance, the brain's learning capabilities get ramped up because it's a survival mechanism, right? It's like, okay, this is survival mode now. Um, I need to be on point and I need to be constantly ready to detect and learn and wire in what I perceive as a threat so that I can deploy that threat response pattern of 
inflammation in the future. Um, so this is where it can kind of like spiral and, and build up, build on itself and where that getting in that space and starting to train in or condition in a new response can start to reverse that learning. Okay. So now, Ben, now I want you to uh, use uh, use your reorigin tools on Matt Sabatello to analyze. <laughs> Wait, Rich, before we go there, I want to follow up on your previous question. Then, then, we, can, then we can analyze me. So we recently posted a graphic on social media about Lyme hiding within nematode parasites in the brain. And every time we do that, Ben, it just triggers people, right? Because they think I can't, there's no medicine that's going to penetrate my blood brain barrier. That's going to be able to kill these nematodes and kill the Lyme inside the nematodes and all these other bad things that exist in my brain because of Lyme and parasites from a tick-borne illness. And we, Rich and I always have to respond to these comments and encourage people, but how would you respond to that? If people have these nematode parasites in their brain that are protecting the Lyme bacteria, that are altering your brain pathways, can brain rewiring and these techniques help actually your body's innate defenses kill it on its own? And you know, if so, is it really as scary as people think when they respond to our social media posts? Yeah, it's a good question. I have to say, this is certainly not my area of expertise. Um, I, I would say that when you can help the body uh, and the, the nervous system into a state where it is optimized for self-healing, the best chances of homeostasis arrive. But I, beyond that, yeah, I, I can speak very little to, to I, I'm actually not familiar with what you're talking about. So I don't want to uh, touch on it too deeply. Well, let me jump in, Matt. Okay. I, I do want to jump in because you know part of what we learned here from Ben during this you know, really great interview, Ben. You're doing a great job here. We're really enjoying this with you. Is that you know, like one of the things that 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 Ben had to learn was that uh, is, is that what medical professionals should be doing for us is reestablishing the self healing system, right? That's what that's what medical professionals should be doing. That's what we should know about our systems. Because part of the reason why so many of us cannot heal is because we are we are not properly educated in, in how to use our body, right? We don't know how to use our body. We don't know our, our body is is has is, is essentially a self-healing system. We don't know uh, what our brain is designed to. We don't know how our self-healing system works together. And because of that, we're in many cases making decisions to use modalities and to pursue treatments that aren't necessarily going to heal us. But Ben is a perfect example. He could show you proof positive. He had a brain with lesions and then he didn't have a brain with lesions anymore. Yeah. And the gap between those two things was brain was, was, was Ben understanding that place where he was free between the events of having brain lesions and, and, and the activities that he took to reestablish a self-healing system through learning how to control his brain and learning how to rewire his brain that ultimately showed he able he was able to show on his TED talk proof positive lesions no lesion right Ben correct yeah yep. and and I'm with you on that and I I'm a firm believer that these things can be remedied and so is Dr McDonald who discussed this on our podcast but it's just scary right when people hear you have bugs in your brain and people hear your brain is stuck a certain way it depending on where you're at can trigger you into deeper fight or flight. Right. And that's sort of my, okay. my point yeah. here, Ben is, you know, mm -hmm. you hear all these scary things. Oh my goodness. I have all these horrible things in mm -hmm. my brain mm -hmm. that I, you know, was born with from my mom because she had all these pathogens that flooded my system and came into my brain. Now I picked these things up all throughout my lifetime. There's no way I can get better. I don't care what you're telling me. And it becomes overwhelming to hear all yes. this background. However, we have to find ways to overcome that fear and implement techniques 
both from you know treatment modalities and brain rewiring modalities to help us overcome this and heal. And I think that's the barrier I'm asking. How do we how do we broach that subject? I see. Yeah, thanks for clarifying that. And that makes so much sense. Um, that's exactly where I was. I think. Look, whenever we talk about um, you know certain things within within the body that when we approach it from a place of thinking about it as like there's damage done. I remember, you know, in my twenties, when I had like knee injuries and stuff, I, I became so depressed because I did not have, even with my background of like exercise and everything. And at that point, I didn't really have a firm handle on or understanding of adaptability and, and plasticity and change. And I'm not saying just brain plasticity, but the plasticity of our body tissue as well. And so when I got, you know, joint uh, tissue damage or something, I was like, ah, oh, you know, in my mind, it was like, oh, I started off with all my chips and now I've got half my chips and, you know, it's only, it's all going to yep. be downhill from here. Right. Not knowing that through physical therapy, through exercise, through movement, through, let's say motion is lotion through a number of things we can do tissue regenerates, you know, uh, limbs heal, things happen. So uh, things can change. And, then when it comes to you know the brain i think that that emotional response gets extrapolated much further out because it's like we know that even for the, for the layperson which i was when i got that diagnosis of of ms and had the brain scans come back with the lesions um we know that the brain is important this is a really important thing i do not want to have quote unquote, brain damage, which technically I had. <laughs> and so when you hear a neurologist and show you that you have brain damage, uh, especially something of the nature that typically does not resolve. And, and I'll say when it comes to things like brain lesions, there's very little understanding of what actually causes brain lesions. And if they do go away, why they went away, or most of the time they, they don't. Um, but yes, being in that place where anything close to your brain has happened can be extremely frightening. And for me, one of the biggest shifts and um, reprieves was just understanding the concept of neuroplasticity. When I learned that the brain is plastic, that the brain is malleable. And just like that wound that you, you can get, you know, get on your thumb that heals itself, that the brain can do the same thing. That gave me hope. That got me out of that place of feeling stuck. Like there was nothing else I could do or no place I could go, but down to feeling like, okay, I don't know how this is going to change. I don't know what to do yet, but I know that the brain changes. So let me look at some cases that were like me or worse than me, who's, you know, where people were, they were able, able to change their brains. And that gave me a tremendous amount of hope for myself. So Ben, in, in answer to Matt's question, uh, the way we should be responding to these folks on social media is to say, you are a self-healing machine and you, you, you can assist yourself with your neuroplasticity and through your epigenetics to ultimately heal your system, right? Yeah, you know, I, I think if I if I could have just one message to get out on a billboard or something to blast out to people, um, it would be plasticity, malleability. You are not stuck because I know from experience and talking to so many people that that feeling is just the worst. <laughs> it's a bad place to be. And it's a totally understandable place to be when you've tried and been met with resistance so many times, it's totally understandable and easy to feel stuck. But I think that 
that paradigm shift of, okay, nothing is truly static. Everything, including the human brain can actually change itself. That gives a necessary glimmer of hope that can open that door just wide enough for us to put our foot through and start taking those steps. So now let's, now let's take the next step, uh, Ben, which is, you know, one of the things we learned from Dr. Leo Shea, who is one of the Lyme pioneers, uh, uh, a, a psychologist, a brilliant psychologist, was that he argued to us that every single psychological symptom is really a physiological symptom. Everything, right? And I think you're making the same argument that, you know, that, that all of what is happening is we have a, a brain that is reorganizing to serve us, right? We have this binary brain, fight or flight versus digest. And we, of course, our brain is always developing these shortcuts because it is such a resource hog of an organ that it, that it, has, to, it has to come up with shortcuts. Um, and now we just talked about a shortcut that everyone in the Lyme community has to deal with, which is, can I get better? You know, can can my brain heal? You know, and, and and of course, what's happening is now this loop that we have in our brain, which again, remember, the loop is a belief. It presents itself as a belief, right? And the belief that you know that Matt was just asking you to identify and to help us to deal with when we're dealing when we're dealing with on social media is, can I get better? Can my brain get better? And the answer to that question is, well, yeah, you have to believe you can get better in order to be able to get better, but it's understandable that you have this loop in your brain that leads you to believe that you cannot get better, right? I mean, mm -hmm. and isn't that what you were arguing there? That that because of these shortcuts in our brain, these shortcuts then present as beliefs, and these beliefs uh, you know, present as thoughts. These thoughts then begin to trigger as feelings, feelings then trigger as actions, and then we find ourselves in that really negative cybernetic loop. Yep. Yeah. But what you're speaking about is there's, there's a conditioning effect known as learned helplessness, where classic example is how elephants are trained uh, to stay in captivity. Uh, a cuff is put around their ankle and they're staked into the ground. And so at a young age, they try to take steps forward to move. And every time the chain gets taut, they're met with some resistance around their ankle and they say, oh, that's my limit. I can't go past that point. I'm not going to try anymore. And so after trying so many times, they simply give up because there's no, no point. At that point, the handler will actually remove the stake from the ground, remove the cuff, and the elephant stays put, stays within the boundaries of the confine that it learned are its limitations because it was met with that resistance. And so it forms the belief isn't even the right word. It's the, it's, it's a neurological uh, wiring that is associated with the boundary, that limit, let's say it's like a certain marker at the edge or in the middle of the room, it has its brain has identified that arbitrary, otherwise arbitrary mark, now arbitrary mark with resistance. And so the brain will literally cut power to the elephant's limbs when it reaches that point because of the past conditioning, not knowing that it can actually step forward if it really wanted to. Well, let's say that, man. So, but isn't that what a belief is? Isn't that really just, is, isn't that what every belief is? It's a neurological wiring that we have the ability to change. Yeah. Uh, you know, a really smart uh, psychologist, one of the, the doctors who helped us design the, the program, Dr. Ken Gorfinkel, you know, once said that uh, he realized a large portion of his, uh, his practice is about helping people realize a bigger scope of possibility. For themselves. So many of the times, whenever we're feeling stuck physically, emotionally, psychologically, neurologically, 
we get into tunnel vision. And I don't know if you're familiar with uh, Andrew Huberman, Huberman Lab podcast. I am. Uh, ophthalmologist. He talks a lot about this, the, the visual system and how that registers in the brain. But one of the things that that happens or that's interesting is what's correlated with these so-called limiting beliefs are an actual narrowing of the visual field. Because your beliefs we, control, but so stay with this, Ben, because your beliefs control cognition, right? Because our brain is really a big filter and our brain cannot absorb all of the data that is available to us. And because, because, because our brain is limiting what it is that we have available to us cognitively, when we, when we have these beliefs, which are nothing more than neurological loops, they are physiological, which by the way, can be changed as you prove repeatedly during the course of this podcast, um, we, you know, our cognition is being controlled, right? And that's why, that's the piece that I wanted to loop back to with my experience with, with Matt, right? When we first started this podcast, um, Matt was very sick. And one of the things that was really frustrating to me early on in the podcast is that Matt would be so sick at times, he wouldn't do the interviews with our guests on Lyme disease. And I didn't know a lot about Lyme disease and I'm interviewing people on Lyme disease, right? And it, it was a lot more than sometimes, but you're being right, kind. It was often, right. so. Yes. So, we, so we had this. So, and what I started to observe in Matt is that as time went on, Matt started to get better. But it's my belief that the reason he started to get better is because he believed he could get better because he was listening to and interviewing people person after person after person after person who were demonstrating to Matt that he could get better. Now, yes, was Matt picking up little hacks? Was he picking up little, was he picking up, you know, shortcuts that he could use physiologically? Sure. But I believe, Ben, and I'd like your reaction to this, that the reason Matt was able to get to the point where he is today, and it's been a huge, huge gap. You would not believe the man I first met a couple of years mm -hmm. ago and compare him to the guy that is interviewing you today. I believe it was because he ultimately was able to change as a result of having contact with all these people or having success, the neurological loops that were keeping him enslaved. And because he was able to change those neurological loops as a result of all this experiential interaction that he had, it put him in a position where he could heal. Oh man, there's a lot to dig into here. <laughs> so this is, yeah, Matt, I don't know. Is there anything you want to, you want to share? I, I'd love to hear from your yeah, uh, the experience I, end of it. And then I'll, I can tell you, Van, in the beginning, Rich and I used to fight often, or debate, I should say, about Rich would tell me 99% of healing is is believing, right? It's 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 in your head. 99% of healing is like 80%, Matt. Tell me about it. 80%. It's 80-20 in my head. Oh, I was 80 yeah. okay. 80% of healing is psychological. It's all in your head, right? And I'm like, there's no way it's physical. You know, and I, I was I was of the position of many people in the Lyme community, which is this is a real illness. I have bacteria and viruses which contributed to my current condition. Because I always believe that, by the way, Ben. I mean, I, yes. I haven't said myself. I always believe that it was. He did. I believe it was a polymicrobial infection. So don't don't, uh, don't, and, don't think I was just thinking it was an emotional illness. So and so much of this was built off of my medical trauma and disbelief by doctors. So being in a hospital and having nurses tell my brother and closest friend that's all in my head. And if I don't take a vacation, I'm going to end up in the psych ward. So all of these, these experiences in life for me to have these beliefs to debate with Rich early on. And I just simply couldn't believe or even, even be open to the possibility to the fact that this was largely a psychological barrier preventing me from getting better because I knew there was something physiologically wrong in my body, right? So I have positive tests. What are you telling me, Rich? But the more I thought about it and the more we debated it, the more I realized that if I'm open to the fact that I can get better and I'm not stuck and I'm not damaged, as you said earlier, Ben, right? Because I think a lot of this was there's damage in my body that I cannot over repair and I'm, and I'm going to accept that. I'm just going to live life as I am. 
once I started to realize that I can make progress, I can heal, I can improve my quality of life, I started to take steps to do that. And I started to be more open-minded and see the world differently. So, you know, my view today is far different than it was three years ago when Rich and I started this debate. And I believe that if it weren't for me having belief that I can feel better, I wouldn't be where I am today. So I do concede to Rich in that point of the argument, but I'm not sure I'm fully 100% with him on some of his arguments, Ben. So I'm curious to see where your thoughts are with this as somebody who's gone through the experience and mm-hmm. who is a neuroplasticity expert and has dedicated your life to studying this type of work. Mm-hmm. Okay, yeah. So let's talk about this this broadening of, of awareness, this broadening of belief or sense of possibility for ourselves, because there is a neurobiological function or reason as to why this actually helps us. <laughs> um, we have a, a large scale network in the brain called the salience network. Uh, the salience basically allows is what allows our brain to focus on specific uh, sensations. We know that basically there's the short of it is that there's, there's far too much information coming in through the senses than we can really process and, and, and attend to at any point. So the brain kind of filters out what it thinks is the most important. And again, because that first order of business is survival, it, it has this sort of what's known as the negativity bias, where it tends to focus its, its salience system around the things that are giving us a less than pleasant feeling. And these can be worries. These can be mental, emotional thoughts. These can be physical sensations or symptoms. Um, but whatever it is, that sensory input, uh, when it's uncomfortable or, or we'll say negative, um, is, is given more weight. Uh, I think it was Kierkegaard, you know, famous philosopher wisely said that, uh, the entire world goes sour when you have a pain in your thumb, right? So that same salience mechanism that allows your brain to pick out the conversation that you're having with one person in an otherwise very crowded, noisy room will allow your brain or have your brain hone in on these, almost like the squeaky wheel on these unpleasant sensations and essentially magnify or, or further sensitize itself to take more signals from that area. Another way to think about it is like this. Imagine that there's this huge, vast football stadium, empty stadium, big, beautiful space. And there's one thing in the stadium. It's a little radio. Imagine there's this little red radio, kind of a squawk box, just making all this noise. And so a few people, you know, start to gather around that radio because we think that's where the action is, not realizing that there's all of this other space. So when we experience a symptom, a worry, a fear, a thought, like I'm stuck, I'm not going to get forward, I'm not going to move forward, or pain in the body, um, the mind will, will, and the brain will take more signals from there at the exclusion of other experiences. Now, it isn't, we're not saying that the experience you're having is false or it's not true. It might very well be the case that there's pain in your body and that there's symptoms that you're feeling and that there's a long road ahead and that there's these worries might have some certain validity to them. So it's not to discount that or to challenge that. It is to say that there are other things going on as well. Out of this 11 million bits of information that's coming in through the brain per second, we're only taking in about 1% of that. Actually so less. we're only taking in nine bits. Nine bits. Thank you. So far less than 1% of that. Um, So part of this self-directed neuroplasticity really boils down to what's known as reprocessing. 
And this is something that's been used very effectively in a modality form called PRT or pain reprocessing therapy and goes back to what, you know, Dr. Ken was saying about what he realized with his scope of practice that it largely boils down to helping someone into a wider scope of awareness where you can, once you're in that gap of stimulus and, and response, and I'll kind of get back to my own story and, and experience of it now, once I was able to get there a little bit more reliably, the next step, the next thing I started to do was take some control and direct my awareness, right? So it's like, okay, in that little space, I have something that I didn't have before. I actually have control over where my attention goes <laughs> because previously my attention was being helplessly pulled into the pain, helplessly being pulled into the narrative, to the, to the future worry, uh, whatever, whatever it was. And in that space, which I now know is, you know, being in that parasympathetic uh, state, the brain has more bandwidth and our attention network can actually become available for where we direct it. So the, the can practice I, can here. I, can I ask you to focus on one thing before you take that step, right? Because the, this, the, you know, our brain, as you had, had pointed out, is is survival software right it, it is designed to to help us to design to to survive primarily right and then of course you now talked about the saline system and our and the focus of our brain on the pain rather than the pleasure because it is a survival software organ right and but the next step we have of course is because we're we're we're, we're filtering out you know almost all of the data that's available to us. Mm -hmm. What happens with when, when the salient system is, is focusing on one piece, then we trigger the reticular activation system and we get more and more and more of that information as time goes on. So can, can you give that piece to our listeners as well, where, where we're focusing on, on, on the pain? And I, I really love your, your, your example of being in a stadium and going to the radio. And now what's happening is the only reason we're seeing the radio is because our brain is bringing us back to the radio because mm -hmm. that's what our survival software has been triggered to do. And that's what the reticular activation system does to us. And it really makes it difficult for us to focus on anything other than that unless we have tools the way you're developing. Yeah. And so in neuroscience, what you're describing is referred to as reinforcement. This is part of a conditioning uh, you know, pattern or, or learned behavior. When something becomes reinforced, it's a, effectively a confirmation, right? It's like we, we, you, you sense the pain in your thumb, then you tune in deeper to that pain. You feel the pain signal get increased and the brain says, yep, good thing I tuned into that, there's pain there. And so it creates this uh, strengthening of the neural pathways associated with taking the pain signals from that region of the body, whether the pain is, is, is warranted by what we referred to earlier as peripheral pathology, uh, or it's just an increased level of, of our sensitization or sensitivity to that pain. So now you can't see anything else, right? Because it controls your cognition. You literally can't see anything else. Yeah. You're just focusing on that. And, and your brain is looping back to it and looping back to it and looping back to it. And, and, and the myelin is getting thicker and it's getting thicker and it's getting thicker. And now the only thing you're taking in is that same 11 bits. I mean, the same nine bits and nothing else. Right. And that's mm -hmm. why, that's why we're now stuck where we're stuck, but you're now arguing that there are tools that will allow us to expand our, our view and, and see what other opportunities are available to us. So can you talk about that and I'll build that out for us? Yeah. And, and just to dovetail off of that, there's two components to learning. Whenever, whenever your brain is learning something, it's really learning two things in the instance of focusing on pain or intensifying the, the attention to pain, 
It's learning to focus deeper on the pain. It's also learning not to pay attention to the surrounding environment, which is free of pain, right? To other aspects of, of reality that are coming into the sense, uh, senses, which might not be so painful. And so that is what we want to start to shift. And at the core of self-directed neuroplasticity and, and symptom or pain reprocessing, it's not about stopping the symptoms. This is something that I think is, is really important for people to understand. And I know it's very confusing and takes a little bit of, you have to wrap your head around it and, and experience it as well. Um, but it's not about interrupting or stopping the symptoms themselves. What we're doing here is we are placing those symptoms in a much broader context. And in so doing, we are actually limiting and reducing our body's reactivity to them because the brain puts a little bit less emphasis. Remember, we said that the brain wrongfully classifies these sensations as life-threatening threats and unpleasant and undesired as they might be, they are not imminently life-threatening in the way that the brain responds to them. And so by placing them in this larger context, by saying, you know, okay, yes, this pain is there in my thumb or this heart palpitation or this symptom or this, this narrative that I feel stuck or whatever it is. Like, it's not about resisting it because we know also what you resist persists. In fact, it's about softening up against it. It's about withdrawing some of our attention from it and replacing that attention on the bigger context around it. Remember, so it's like, sure, you still hear that squawk box, that radio in the stadium, but you take a step back from it and you see, oh, wow, there's this huge arena here and I can tune into that as well. And here's where the magic happens. The deeper we tune into that context over the content, the more we drop, the deeper we drop into the parasympathetic state, the, the less our brain starts taking those sensations uh, through the salience network from that, that, that pain sensation. And it starts to actually subside. Inflammatory mechanisms and threat detection mechanisms start to get disarmed, so to speak. And um, the body starts to eventually default to a new state of, of calm and eventually homeostasis. Ben, on this topic, though, a lot of people that are listening, and I know we're going to get the messages, so I'm just going to ask you now so to curb us getting the ask, is everything you're saying sounds amazing, but it's a lot easier said than done, right? I've tried it. I've tried Gupta. I've tried Vital Side. I've tried all of them that are out there. I've done three or four different neuroplasticity programs, and they're too rigid, or I've done them, and I've spent so much time and money, and I'm worse off than I was before. How mm. would you respond to that? And talk to us about how Reorigin is different than the other programs that are out there, and how the self-directed neuroplasticity can really help describe the process you just explained to us. Sure. So this stuff is not complicated, but to your point, it is not easy, right? It is, it is different, and it requires at first doing things that are uncomfortable and, and different from the way we've been practicing. And you know, one of the things with Reorigin is we've have the, had the benefit of uh, working with a lot of people that have done a lot of brain retraining programs in the past and have come to us with a lot of, of a lot of questions. And one of the ways, although I, I certainly haven't done all of the, the neuroplasticity programs out there myself, I've done a handful of them uh, in an effort to always learn. Um, one of the ways that I think Reorigin is a little bit different is that our program is as dynamic as the human brain itself. It is not a static 
program by which you sit back and passively watch videos or take in information and then do a, you know, a, a protocol just based on that. There are some fundamental principles when it comes to what I call doing neuroplasticity or the, the act of changing your brain in a self-directed way um, that, that I think apply across the board, but how you actually implement those, I believe needs to be very personalized and customized. And so we have a, a process in our program whereby we, um, we walk you through really unpacking your own, what we call neurophysiologic loops. So you can really understand how and why your brain and body are reacting the way they are. And then you can graft on this protocol uh, into a way that's more like a lock and key fit that will work better for you. Um, in addition to that, we also have coaching. We have group and individual coaching that can help people custom tailor this. So um, yeah, I, I think that that level of customizability and, and personalization and responsiveness um, is really key. Myself and the other um, uh, coaches and, and uh, moderators in, in the program, we're very involved. And in the program, there's it's very interactive as well. So if, when people go through it, uh, they might be asked to share takeaways or comments or questions underneath, you know, videos or certain areas of the community forum and the program. And so it's very dynamic and we're constantly going through those, um, you know, those comments and questions. And when we see certain patterns, we make shifts to the program, we create new videos, we hold events, you know, online events um, that address those, those different topics. So here's an interesting way to, to kind of think about, you know, doing neuroplasticity and then then we can get more more specific imagine that you're you're trying to pull a fence post out of the ground imagine if how hard it would be if you had a if you were trying to follow a protocol that told you exactly what angles and number of movements and repetitions you had to do to loosen up that fence post to pull it out of the ground instead there are certain principles apply, like a fundamental principle would be that the more you move it, the looser it gets, right? And then based on these principles and the conditions that you're operating in, however the, the ground is, how deep the post is dug, there is some degree of, of intuition that has to come into play here of how you're gonna apply these principles. Basically in this case, wiggling around the fence post in certain ways um, until the ground around it gets looser so that you can just easily lift it out of the ground. So when we're trying to loosen this grip that our brain has on these symptoms, um, there are different sort of wiggling maneuvers that we can do to feed back new information to the brain and particularly to the limbic system. And just to give you an example of how you know dynamic the, the reorigin program is, um, visualization is certainly something that we use, uh, but there are visual learners, there are kinesthetic learners, and there are auditory learners. Visualization is not necessarily the immediate go-to that works for, for everyone. So we have a whole toolkit of, uh, of ways that you can feed new information back to the limbic system through somatics, through changing your breathing pattern, your posture uh, to, uh, you know, of course, reciting different scripts, visualization, but also um, auditory, listening to certain sounds or music that can assist you into a different state. And then the personalized aspect of, you know, helping people learn how to combine these tools in a way that's going to work for you to broaden that scope and loosen the foundation around those symptoms, I've seen has, has been really, um, you know, pivotal and, and essential for a lot of people.
Yeah, I look at this, Ben, if I'm listening to this podcast and I'm super interested in neuroplasticity and now I'm really interested in reorigin, right? If you could just give us a little bit more detail about if somebody wanted to go to, the, to your website, and I think it's reorigin.com, is that correct? Yep. Reorigin.com, and they wanted to sign up. What is What does it look like to be a part of reorigin and participate in your neuroplasticity program? Are we talking several hours a day engagement, a half hour? And what kind of work, you know, at a high level would be done in this program? Just to give people a little more understanding of exactly what they're walking into if they decide to sign up with you. Yeah. So the first thing they'll do is, is they find themselves in uh, a community platform. Uh, it's available on a mobile browser uh, or, or web app, uh, sorry, web app or mobile app. <laughs> and um, it functions very much kind of like a, a social media at first glance. So it's very intuitive to use for most people. Very unlike social media, however, it is highly curated uh, such that everything being shared there um, has been laid out and shared uh based on neuroscience principles. So we employ things like the science of small wins, everything that we've just been talking about of uh, belief effects, which are currently being studied at Stanford, um, are being utilized in the information that is presented from the moment you walk in the door, so to speak, uh, at reorigin. Now, once someone is in the, in the community, uh, the journey really begins with going through a series of videos our video program is collectively about seven hours, but it's broken down into bite-sized five to 10 minute videos that people can go through at their own pace. Uh, some people will go through the whole thing in, in a weekend. Other people will take up to four weeks. The only real guideline that we provide in terms of self-pacing is to try to go through all of the videos within about four weeks, um, just to not get too far, have, it, have the information be too far spread apart. As I mentioned, as people are going through, they are actually participating in, in things right from the beginning. They're doing exercises. They might be asked to fill out worksheets or uh, leave a certain takeaway or something under a video. And that's done for a very specific uh, neuroscience reason that we employ active learning as opposed to passive learning. When I went to survival school, which I spoke about in my TED talk, I remember being bombarded with all of these lessons. They were teaching us about thermoregulation and night vision and all these different things and how to modulate your, your body's energy energy levels. And, um, and I was like, why are they throwing all this information at me? And then they left me alone. And I was like, oh, okay, now I get it. And all of a sudden, all of these things that I had just learned had to be utilized. And well, we're certainly not going to leave you alone or leave you hanging or put you in some sort of scenario like that. The point is that when you learn and then apply right away, you remember your brain, it really gets wired in. And to this day, now 10 years later, after that experience, um, I still remember every aspect of the things that I learned in that survival school um, because it was learning and applying right away. So uh, they'll go through the program, they'll learn and apply uh, these different uh, techniques, uh, and then they'll start really practicing them. Now, to your question about how long this takes, this is a question that comes up all the time. I do these live info calls that anyone can join. If you go to the website now and, and click on book a call, uh, you will join a group call with myself. I do these two to three times a week. Um, and the question always comes up, one, how long does this take? Like, how, what's the time investment per day, which is a great question. And number two, how long is it going to take me to get better? Right. That's a question that comes up all the time. So the first one is that we have found that there is a sort of 
optimal therapeutic dose of practicing the reprocessing or brain retraining exercises, uh, which is about 30 minutes a day. Now, in alignment with the first thing I mentioned, which is science of small wins and consistency being the most important thing, we always, always tell people, shoot for what is attainable, not for what is optimal. If what is your sweet spot when you come in is one minute a day, then that's what you should do. What you do is second to that you do. And in the long run, if there, if I could say what's the one most important thing when it comes to brain retraining, um, it is really a matter of consistency over time. And this doesn't mean, you know, consistency does not mean perfection. Certainly there are days when we fall down, we forget, we don't do it right. The great news is that there's no limit to the number of chances you can pick yourself back up and start again, but we do want to set ourselves up for success. And so for most people, um, we encourage them to start with just a few minutes a day and then a la incremental training, work their way up to that total training time of about 30 minutes a day, which even then can be broken down into say two 15 minute sessions a day or three 10 minute sessions a day. Um, however you want to kind of configure it, but, um, yeah, that is the the sort of answer to the first first question. You we work our way up to that thirty minutes, um, and then there are some things that we can do. We have short versions of the technique that take about five seconds, that are meant to be done in the moment to kind of quickly snap ourselves back into that um, pre rehearsed state of parasympathetic response. And I just want to clarify when I said your website, it's actually re-origin.com, I believe, right? Yeah, re-origin.com. Correct. So the the final question we're going to get asked, and I'm just trying to get ahead of all the questions we're going to get here, is you know pricing wise, is this a, subscri a subscription model? Is it a is it a one time cost? It looks like you have a free demo. So can you just get it a little bit into about your pricing model for people to join your program? Yeah, so it is a one time cost. Uh, people can join the program for I think it's two ninety seven. Um, is the the program itself there? They have access one year access to the program and the community. Uh, part of the community includes live weekly Q and A's with myself and Katie, who's the head coach, um, as well as uh, events every month or so. We'll have a, a guest expert come. We've had members of the Reorigin Brain Trust. This includes um, uh, Dr. Kelly Kent, neuroscientist, and Dr. Ken Gorfinkel, uh, you know, psychologist. We've had yeah, all sorts of experts and interesting people come. And, and so when people join, they'll get access to attend those, those events. When we have them, they'll also get access to the video recordings of the uh, sort of content library that we've you know started to amass over the last couple of years. Um, for the people that want a little bit more, you know, accountability and support, the group coaching is really phenomenal here. This is um, something that about 40% of the members tend to include in the onset. Um, they can also add it on later on once they've you know gotten familiar with the program and community. Um, but that has proven to be really valuable for for a lot of people. And this is even speaking, you know, from a person who was not really a group person myself. I was always more of like a solo, you know, figure it out myself kind of kind of kid. I have actually benefited tremendously in in recent years from the power of coming together with people, having a weekly set time. Um, and having people cheer each other on, support each other, and having that sense of, um, yeah, just support, motivation, and accountability is, is huge. There also is a kind of arc to those groups. There is a, a curriculum that occurs over the 12 weeks where they go deeper into specific aspects of the program. So there's a lot of value. And um, those, those uh, 
sessions equate to about $79 a month for, for three months. So they are time bound to 12 weeks at a time. Well, I want to encourage everybody to go check out at a minimum your free trial on your website, because this has been a fascinating discussion and we can keep you. I think we've had you probably well over two hours now, so I will let Rich jump in with his final thoughts. But uh, Ben, we just want to thank you for coming on and sharing all your knowledge and you know providing hope and inspiration for people in the community, because as you know, and as I know, so many of us become stuck and we just accept where we're at. And you just just crushed those false beliefs that we can't get better. And, you know, the Lyme community needs need more hope and people like you to come out here and publicly speak and say, hey, you can get better. Don't give up and don't lose sight of health because it's possible. So thank you. Thank you, Matt. I appreciate that. So that I, I likewise am going to encourage folks in our community to work with you. Um, and and I, I think we should sort of end this the way we began this. And it all is uh, your, your, your brilliant program and the way you've described it, I think, is is all driven by this understanding that we can respond with ability, that there is this space between these events that are causing us to be sick and the way we respond to them. And the way you can start to uh, overcome these challenges is with one deep breath. Absolutely. It starts in one place, right? We just get our foot in that door and we realize that there is a world of possibility. And I think moving from that place mentally, emotionally, psychologically, and neurologically from feeling stuck to knowing that there is a bigger possibility for yourself is the essential first step of this journey of healing that I know that we all can can go on and are on. So I just want to thank you guys for having me on the podcast. And uh, yeah, this was a really fun conversation. Thank you for listening to our Tick Bootcamp interview with our guest, Ben Ahrens. To our listeners, we have a call to action. First, if you'd like to learn more about Ben Ahrens, please visit his website at reorigins.com, R-E-O-R-G-I-N-S.com. Second, if you enjoyed this episode of the Tick Bootcamp podcast, please share it with your friends on social media. Third, Tick Bootcamp is created to take by Blueprint. It has been inspired by the information been shared with us by past guests on this podcast. We are due to visit our website at takebootcamp.com forward slash bite to view the blueprint. Fourth, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify to get your automatic episode updates of our Take Bootcamp podcast. Please take a minute to leave us an honest review on the podcast platform of your choice. And finally, if you'd like to search our podcast library of almost 350 episodes, subscribe to our email list, or share feedback, please visit our website at takebootcamp.com. Thank you, as always, for listening.